And it is a damn good day to have a damn good day. We're live. It's the damn good day show. Max Anderson's in the building. What's up, man? This What's is up, happening. Man? What's up? I'm fired up about this because I, I remember when I first came across you. Was it through Instagram or something? I, I, I think so. I came across you and I remember seeing like, what does this guy do? He's <laughs> traveling. He's living this digital nomad lifestyle. And I did that for a little bit. I lived in Colombia for six months in Medellin. And right. I kind of got a taste and I get the, the, the urge. But there's obviously a lot of difficulties with traveling and doing all this stuff. So I'm fired up that you're here. And I know like you're traveling next week. So the timing worked out great. Yeah, yeah, it's good. We actually, we leave tomorrow going to Spain. Very cool. Yeah. 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 And you had, yeah. so that's you and your, your um, fiance. wife? Fiance. Fiance. Yeah. fiance. yeah. But we just decided we're like kind of acting married. It was weird that she has a ring and I don't have a ring. It's like, why is it like that? I never thought about that before. But you get engaged, you put a ring on her and then she's got one and you don't. It's like, I'm kind of jealous. So I'm wearing around one of my random rings on my ring finger. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's awesome, man. You're just yeah. so happy. Yeah. Yeah. It's good, dude. It's good. You found that's a real good. one yeah yeah like i kind of was building it up like it like it just feels like such a huge decision and it needs to be a big thing and what and i was like planning to have a really elaborate proposal and all of that and then one day i just realized i was like wait if i'm certain about this i should just like pull the trigger on it I woke up the next morning like left at 8 a.m went over to the little like jewelry district here in miami brought home a wedding band to propose with because i knew she wanted to pick her ring and I just like put on a tux and surprised her with it. And it was like, wow, like it just feels locked into place. Like it's great. It's great. That's a great, that must yeah. be an amazing feeling. Our entire yeah. lives were, you know, put into the construct of marriage and one day potentially having children and all this stuff. And you're thinking about it every single day. When that finally happens, there must be some level of relief or just yeah. like settling down yeah. with yourself, knowing that, hey, there's a large part of me that can now focus on things that matter. <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's like, I mean, we've been living together for, I don't know, almost four years, maybe three years. But like, and we feel like a team, but there's a different thing when you're like, all right, man, this is forever. Like we're a different level of team. And so it's, well, it's when cool. you travel with someone, I feel like you really get to know them. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. Like, like, you know, travel tests you and like, you know, you see, you see the other at their best and at their worst and you're like with each other through it. So yeah, I think it's the best. That's the best special. thing you can do for that's, a relationship. That's the coolest thing. Yeah. And to have like yeah. a level of bond with anybody that you can just completely be yourself. That's the dream. You know? yeah, but yeah. it's interesting because as I've gotten older, my entire perspective changes about just the type of who I'm interested in and like the qualities I'm interested in, right. the type of person. It changes so much. Yeah. So it almost makes me always wonder, like anyone that, that pulls the trigger too early, I just feel you need to really settle into yourself before you can really figure out, you know, find the person that, you, yeah. that, that works with you. For sure. Although I think that's a little overrated, meaning that like... Stephanie and I are two completely different people than we were when we met and you're going to grow together. So I think that there's a lot like there's too much emphasis put on like, oh, all these things have to happen before I can really find the one. And it's like you just got to dive into it. And along the way, you're either growing together or you're growing apart. Yeah, I and think if, I think it's just more like an excuse single people say to make them feel less single. They're like, yeah, right. listen, I'm you know just focusing on myself right now. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, I of course there is like, you know, you got to get your shit straight right. before you can be like whole in a relationship. But like, 
I don't have my shit straight anywhere near. Like, you know, of, of course, like, you, you know, you do some growth on your own. But, like, I feel like most of the growth that people think that they need to do before they can be in a committed relationship, you actually can't really do that outside of the container of a committed relationship because that's what brings all the challenges and that's what brings all the triggers that you got to work through. Right. It's like, it's like the, the growth comes through the fights. And if you're single, you don't have the fights cause you can just, you know, if it gets a little heated, you're like, Whoa, this isn't fun. I'm walking away. So I feel like people, people put too much emphasis on needing to kind of grow and evolve and be some like perfect version of yourself before you can show up for your soulmate. I think that, there's something special about just being uh, kind of vulnerable and humble and being like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Totally. Like, yeah. yeah I and agree. like, in, and having the nasty fights and then like being like, okay, we had a nasty fight. Let's, what, what do we do now? Like, I'm still in this. Let's like the ability yeah. to be vulnerable in life is a superpower because you finally feel comfortable in your own skin when you can. Right. Right. You know, I, yeah. I feel I've gotten way better at it just over the past, like three months almost. I, just, I remember Sky was telling me like a lot's changed just in, in my own life, just feeling like settling into maybe it's the new podcast studio and the new vibe, you know, this is just such a chill area. Dude, it's great. Yeah, we it's can great. just like yeah. mesh out. Yeah, yeah. But uh, man, I'm excited because you talked about growth there and growing together. You've had a crazy journey. I got some sneak peeks just through like some of the messages we met. Yeah, so yeah. I'm pretty fired up. So you, you, the OG story dropped out of school and you joined a tech startup. Yeah, so kind of a crazy story i think i was a sophomore or junior in college and it was the morning after a party and i was so hungover and i was just walking back from like an 8 a.m electrical engineering class half asleep and i think i was still a little bit drunk because it was like you know 8 a.m the next morning you didn't have a hangover so yeah and i was like i was i was walking back from engineering class to go back to my house and i see this like hundred person line a hundred person line of people in suits outside our student union building and i'm like what's going on here so i like go look and it's some internship fair and i was like interesting and so because i was like not dressed up nice people just kind of let me walk in in front of them because i thought i wasn't there for the internship fair and i just like went and walked around and looked at all the different booths and it was just everyone was so stressed out the people like doing the you know booth thing looked like they weren't having a good time. Everyone was like, you know, trying to get an internship, really stressed out in their like monkey suit with a tie thing. And as I was walking, that is a stressful environment, super stressful. And I was just like walking around kind of thinking it was funny. And then, you know, it's like official booth. It's like Coca-Cola or the U S army and like very, very, very serious. And there's this one, like where a booth should be. There's like a plastic folding table with just two dudes sitting behind it and a foam core board that said porch <laughs> and they had no one talking to them. They're the only one with no line. So I just went up and talked to them and they were like laughing at me cause I was in pajamas and I was laughing at them cause they were like booth was like, you know, probably cost $15 yeah. kind of thing. We hit it off. Turns out that the guy behind the table was one of the early employees at Google. He like had the idea for the AdWords optimization team at Google, which is basically the idea that, uh, Google was selling pay-per-click ads, but they never had the idea that if they have employees who go account manage the advertisers, if you help the advertisers get a higher ROI, they'll spend more money. And so he was the guy who had that idea at Google. He talked to the founders of Google about it. And then 
he started doing it himself and then he made the clients more efficient their spin went up and then he proved it out and before he left google was a thousand person team generating like billions of incremental revenue so i was like whoa <laughs> you're crazy <laughs> whoa, man whoa, like you're like early stage google like like some like i use adwords all the time and i was like you're one of the guys like the guys that call me to help me optimize the campaigns like you made that team like that's super cool and so he's like, yeah, we're having like a, a little get together at like my co-founder's house tonight. Like come over for free pizza. It's like college get to come over for free pizza. Go and I meet like his co-founder. These two guys, they're best friends from Stanford. Just got like matched in their dorm room at Stanford. They started a company in their dorm room when they were freshmen or sophomores. They sold it for $60 million out of their dorm room. And then that's when Ronnie and the guy from Google went on to Google and the other guy went, Matt Ehrlichman, went like building a couple more companies. He took one of them public. And then Ronnie had just left Google and Matt had just taken his company public. They were both going to like take time off and retire. And then like six months later, Matt started another company. And I was like, what? Yeah, that's nuts. <laughs> what? Like I was, I was like in mechanical engineering. That's a Cinderella yeah. story right there. Yeah, I was like in mechanical engineering school and I was like, why would I finish college? <laughs> like, how could I have better people to just like learn from? So I dropped out the next day and started working in their basement. Um, what did you say to them? I was like, I want to work from you. I don't care what to do. So I started as like, like a, a marketing Wall Street moment. Yeah. Like, Show me your check. Yeah. All right, I'll do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I started as like a marketing intern and it, I had to like fight tooth and nail to negotiate from $0 per hour rate <laughs> to twelve fifty an hour. And I just dropped out and started working for them for twelve fifty an hour, which was funny at the time. It was like maybe six or eight full-time employees at the company and then an army of 30 unpaid engineers, or sorry, interns, interns, 30 unpaid interns. So that's what they were doing. They were just like, all right, we got to do a bunch of scrappy startup stuff. We're like, you know, not going to spend a lot of money. Let's just get like 30 ambitious kids <laughs> and just have them Show like them the dream. Yeah, we'll yeah, teach yeah, them. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a great it. strategy. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. 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 So then you, you went through that process and yeah. you're, you're sitting there, you're learning from these guys. They have this epic story. You're yeah. all just infatuated with them. You're making yeah. enough money to survive, but you're what 20, like 18, 19, about 20, I think. Yeah. yeah so you're, yeah. you've done college for a year. You're yeah. like, this is. No, it was like, I think my junior year in college. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually like still stayed in college and still took like a couple classes, but I never like finished the graduation. I actually did finish the credits one class per quarter over like the next two or three years. So I did end we up. We have a similar story because right. I dropped out right. of, of college for a, a sem semester or a semester and a half basically when yeah. i joined vima a network marketing company i was in the right place at the right time and essentially built a team of 1500 distributors selling wow. energy drinks wow and we were just slinging sling <laughs> verve man good times nice dude. taught me so much about just life and being able to step outside your comfort zone right and i think the biggest lesson and takeaway from the experience and one of them is that age does not matter right it's who someone is right you just develop friendships with people from every age group and i thought that was just such an amazing lesson like looking back what do you think was maybe one of the biggest learning experiences being in that 30 intern team you know i don't think there was much i didn't learn much from the other interns there um like no one really stuck around 
I think a lot of people don't take internships that seriously. It's kind of like a resume builder sort of thing. There's maybe like one or two other people that were actually software engineers that were like doing real work. And I just sort of treated it like I'm never going to find people that are going to be better to learn from than these guys. It's like crazy that the only reason we got in a conversation is because I wandered into an internship fair in PJs and they had like a ridiculously like nothing booth. So they had no line there. I was like, this is very, you know, not going to happen again. So I'm not going to get a chance to learn from people like this. And so I just hustled really, really, really hard and was like anything. I worked directly for Ronnie, who's super smart, very scrappy guy, just doing like anything we could figure out to get traffic to the website. Cause it was like starting from zero. The company was actually called help score at the yeah. time, which made, you know, a bad name. And then like they renamed it to porch and we changed like what the business was trying to do like five times. It's a completely different business now than it was then. But it was just sort of this, this like this really high energy, like, you know, we're just going to will this thing into existence and build a big company. And the business model is sort of like fungible, but we're just going to figure it out. So the first thing we did was just decide, okay, we need to put a price on like what we're willing to pay for a visitor to the website. And we just started at like, we're like 10 cents. Okay. Let's figure out how to get traffic to the website for 10 cents. And we just tried everything, like anything you could think of and just hustling on problems like that. And there's no way to monetize. Right. But like when you, when you kind of just say, okay, this is a reasonable thing to do. Like if we can get traffic for 10 cents, we can probably figure out how to monetize it for more than that. And so we just, you know, kept, kept hustling and trying to solve problems. What was and the product that the porch was creating? So at the time, like the thesis was like, there's like Angie's list and home advisor existed where you could sort of like go submit your information online to like get, basically you would like submit a lead if you wanted like plumbers or handyman or roofers to work on your house. And that industry had been around for like a decade. Angie's list had been public for like 15 years and never turned a profit. So they just like had a business model that wasn't really working and home advisor, which is a public company today, I think at the time was just kind of, you know, in the business of getting people to fill out forms online and then selling their information for as much money as possible ends up, you know, not being great customer experiences. So they were called service magic originally had to burn that brand and rebrand to home advisor because of like the bad experiences. So that was sort of like the state of the home improvement lead gen industry. And Matt was just like, he actually, after he took his company public, um, he like retired and started building his family's dream house. And as he was building the house, he's like, this is ridiculous. It's like really, really hard to find good people to work on your house. Like anyone who's good through word of mouth is fully booked out. Like you go look online and there's not like, there's a bunch of information, but the only thing you can do is like put in your phone number and email. And then you just get like hounded by call centers that are like, you know, not like, the ones that are really aggressively trying to like get you to hire them might not be the best. <laughs> right. So like, I think the idea was originally like, uh, could you use like the Facebook social graph to see who, like if your neighbor or your friend has hired this handyman, that's like, 
probably a better Building signal. sort of a web. Right, of, right. Of, like sort of putting word of mouth online. Yeah. And it was a, the idea sounded good. It just didn't work because it's just really, really hard to find, like to match up availability and like have all those sort of data sources link. Yeah. Um, but you got but, exposed to working with data. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was it was an interesting ride. I mean, I think the company raised about a hundred million dollars in venture capital, and we just I think went from like zero to five hundred people in like three and you're years. Number, you're in the top ten. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had we did not have product market fit at all the entire time. It was just like willing it into existence and just like figuring out how to survive. And there was never product market fit until very recently, like maybe past two years or so it IPO'd, um, not yeah, actually last December, no, not last December, the one before it and probably got product market fit a year before that, but ran for like five or six years with no product market fit and just like brute forcing growth. And that was a cool learning experience where it's like, um, you don't have to have it all figured out or get it, you know, right at the get go. If you just like keep willing it and like, just keep trying to grind at it and stay alive, you know, eventually you can figure it out. I love when you say willing it because it's basically the way I understand what you're saying is you're running hundreds of experiments just figuring out right. what works, right. you know, what's right. something that can work, whether right. it be as simple as having an influencer display your company all the way down to, you know, handing out CDs, like, yo, get your CD here, like whatever possible way you can get your product in front of people right. to see what happens. Yeah. yeah. And doing it with a group of people that are all stoked on the idea. Yeah. What an amazing time. What a great just oh, feeling when you're just surrounded by ambitious, hungry people right. that are all just like kids again. What if, what if this thing blows up? What if it gets created? Right. That's a cool feeling. For sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think anyone that doesn't have something where they're like, this job is the best job I could ever imagine for myself. This is my career path. Or like, this is the company I want to start. If you don't have those two things, going to an early stage startup and selecting based on like, talk to the founders and you're like, do I want to learn from these people? It's like the best learning experience you can have. And yeah, I'll be candid. I think like, so I came out of like mechanical engineering school at UW. I think all of my peers probably earned two or three times the salary I earned for like the majority of the time I was at porch. So you definitely like you're, you're taking a big pay cut on salary at a startup and you're obviously betting really hard on on equity but i think even and it's hard to negotiate that equity piece early especially if you know actually before. no the equity um the equity was easy to negotiate really? so well like i sort of made the decision that i was going to take a sort of half of market rate salary and then negotiate really 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 hard for equity so i think when i first joined porch i got like an initial grant of like 10,000 options and over six years there, I negotiated that up to like 300,000 options because it was just like every chance I got when it would be a normal time to get a raise. I'd be like, no, 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 you're playing the long game, no salary raise, but like I want a lot of equity and it would be like every six months to 12 months negotiate for more equity. And that's the currency that's easy. Like that's the kind of fungible thing in a startup. Like if you run out of cash, you're dead. So that's like, 
very, very high opportunity cost on the cash. But the equity, it's like there's way more room. And it builds buy-in though with with people. I think the point I was saying is that if you've never negotiated equity, if you've never really been familiar with it, it's easy to get taken advantage of because you don't ask. And in life, you need to stand up for your value in anything. If you're going to contribute, if you're going to build... You need to ask and you need to work and prove, right? Right. Because those are things that can change your life. I mean, the thing, same thing happened with me. Like I've, I have a very similar story um, with Trueface. So like when I was at college, that what's com- Trueface? Trueface is a facial recognition company. Awesome. So they created a facial recognition doorbell, but it used to be called Chewy, C H U I. Got it. But back up during the time with Vima, Vima ended up getting shut down as an alleged pyramid scheme, that network marketing company, which was a crazy story. We actually had the CEO on this podcast, episode eight, BK Barreco, legend, shout out, I love you, BK. (laughs) And he actually came on the podcast and told the story for the first time of what happened. They went from a $221 million to negative $7 million in two days as an alleged pyramid scheme which was crazy wait 200 million dollars of market cap or revenue? And like arr yeah in revenue they went yeah. from 200 million to negative seven off allegations that they were a pyramid scheme wow crazy yeah crazy. and they ended up after three years they ended up crawling back and fighting back but it's just crazy that when you get your foot in and you start actually reaching out and networking and connecting and opening yourself up to new opportunities right anything can happen right Right. which is just gnarly so it's interesting how you went from this whole opportunity of of going through this startup and you stuck with it all the way to the ipo yeah 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 and then when they actually ipo'd were you like woohoo let's go i mean to be honest i was probably checked out in terms of convicted i wanted to move on from the company one or two years before the ipo because like when you go from 10 people in the basement of a house to 100 people to 1,000 people, it just gets corporate. Like you can't, it's not anyone's fault, but it just takes a lot more process and bureaucracy to just keep 1,000 people rowing in the same directions than it does like 10 people, right? And so I, for a period of time, was like very ambitious from a job title perspective and was like, you know, I want to be on the executive team. I negotiated for that. And one of like my annual reviews, I was like, I want, you know, this bump in equity. I want to be on the executive team. I want to report to the CEO. Worst, worst decision reporting to the CEO because Matt Ehrlichman, the CEO of Porch, which I'm sure is common among a lot of startup CEOs, is just unlimited energy and such high expectations of everyone that it is just like, oh my God, like it's so much pressure to report to someone like that. And it's like, it's amazing because it's like the world wants startups to die. Like everything is conspiring against it. And you just need a leader who's just like unlimited energy. Yeah. Yeah. And you need that. Like if, if you're at a company where the CEO or someone on the leadership team is not that it's, like a lot of things have to go right for that to work. <laughs> Basically you just have to get lucky to like stumble into a market that's going to be huge and growing with no competition. But like that very rarely happens, right? Like usually the entire world and the economy are like conspiring against the startup to kill it. And so you just need like a savage, you know, super high energy, relentless, like, leader that has very high expectations of their people, very high expectations of their people to drive them. 
and good learning experience but because of being that, a direct report because of like, that they can also be huge dicks <laughs> no no actually uh, matt's an awesome person yeah yeah like really cool guy but his just expectations of his like employees and like the guy wakes up at like 4 a.m and is working till like 10 p.m and like emails in your inbox at 4 a.m emails in your inbox at 10 p.m just like you know where is this where is this where is this and it's like wow like it if you want to have a work-life balance, you know, if you want to grow your career as fast as possible, you know, you respond to that and you stay with it and you, you can do that. But, um, you know, I sort of made the decision, which is like, I don't want to be on that treadmill, um, forever. And so kind of like backed off, got off the exec team and got to more of an, like an individual contributor role where I could bounce around the company and kind of work on, um, high impact problems, but you know, not ones where it was a lot, you know, 80% 80% of the day is in meetings kind of thing. Yeah. It's yeah. great that you yeah. decided, look, this is not sustainable. Right. You know, I need right. to figure out a new path. I need to relax. I need to, right. my mental health is important, right? right? Because it's so easy to just get bogged down in the constant workflow. Right. And then obviously your best month or your best quarter, your best success is what you're judged after. Right. So people not right. only expect that, but if you just continue to do that, it's not impressive anymore. You have to one up it. Right. So it's it really interesting. Like you talking about reporting to the CEO, like, right. so th- that entire process great. And then you move to LA, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I met Steph, it's actually here in Miami. Funny story. We were for porch opening up a call center in Atlanta. So I was like, we were building software for the call center staff. So I was in a small town, like an hour North of Atlanta, Georgia, where we had the call center there. And I would go like sit and watch the call center people on the phone and watch their process and figure out what's inefficient and then like change the software to make it better. And so it was one of those weeks where I'd been in Atlanta with the team and I realized on Friday that it was Memorial Day weekend. This was like Memorial Day five years ago. Um, and I was like, oh man, like everyone Wait, back Monday in, off. <laughs> right, right. Everyone back in Seattle already has Memorial Day weekend plans. I didn't even think about it because I was like work travel and really tired and all that. And so Saturday morning of Memorial Day after the work day ended, I just went to Atlanta airport at like six o'clock in the morning was like, screw it. I'm just going to buy the cheapest plane ticket and, um, walked into Atlanta airport and the cheapest plane ticket was Miami. It was like $60. So I just got on a plane to Miami two hours later, land here, pull up the little window shade. It's like a full on tropical storm. Just like I had all these pictures of Miami in my head from, from the movies. And it's just like gray and like whipping palm trees and like crazy rain. I was like, Oh man, I probably should have checked the weather. first so i went and stayed at uh, a hostel in south beach um which was a cool experience you know um a lot of travelers from all around the world and that kind of thing and then on the sunday of that memorial day i saw steph and i recognized her it was really interesting um a couple years before that i had met her in new york city and like i thought that she was the most beautiful girl i'd ever seen i was just like awestruck and I was hitting on her the entire night. It was like through like, a group of friends and she was like, you know, in the group that was there. I was hitting on her the You're whole night. You're dialed in. She wasn't having it. She was just shutting me down. And I like had never saw her again after that night. Um, and I had dreams about her. Like every once in a while, like I had dreams about that girl that I saw that night in New York. And the last day here in Miami, like, this was like two or three days or sorry, two or three years after I had first seen her in New York, I recognized her. 
in Miami. We recognized each other. We hit it off. Turns out she was in like a five-year relationship at the time when we met in New York. And so that's why she was just like, you know, not having it because she was like loyal to her man. But she had just gotten out of that relationship Timing, when I met man. her. Yeah, right, right. And so we hit it off. We had like, you know, just like clicked. And then the next day I had to fly home because it was like the end of the weekend. And the next, like one week later, she flew to see me in Seattle. And then we did every two weeks, like I would fly, you know, seven hours Seattle to Miami. And then two weeks later, she would fly like, you know, Miami to Seattle. That must, did have, that. That must have been awesome. It yeah. was cool. It was cool. It's a lot of flying, but it was cool. We got a yeah. lot of points. The great reward. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then after a year, she's like, yo, we can't keep doing this. We got to like, you know, move in together or, um, you know, stop dating because we can't do long distance forever. So we negotiated on it. It didn't feel like we wanted neutral ground. Like me moving to Miami would be like me moving into her life. Her moving to Seattle would be like her moving into my life. So we just decided together. We're like, let's, let's just go pick LA. And we, we decided to move together. We just went out together and said, let's right, do that. Right. So we just like rented an apartment in LA, flew together and moved in together. And then after the apartment was rented and we had decided to move there, I just went and told my boss at porch. I was like, I'm moving to LA. Like I've made this decision. I would like to still work here. I really want to, um, can we figure out how we can make that work? And it was like, out of the 500 people at the company, they had zero remote work. This was, it's crazy how different it is now. So crazy. But it was like a really hard, I was like doing research online for hours and hours trying to figure out how to negotiate remote work. Companies that don't let you work remote today, like what's going on? Right. You can just get so much more talent all over the world. Right. Yeah, it's very different now. I think it's like the norm, but it's crazy. I think this was 2017 or 2018. It was hard. It was like, I had to put all the chips on the table, like cash in all the social capital and to negotiate remote too. work. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so negotiated remote work, did that um, uh, from LA for like six months, which is sort of a stepping stone. Like if you're at a corporation um, and you want to go live like the four hour work week, four hour work week lifestyle, I think just moving to a different city where you can still kind of like live a normal life, like you have a nine to five job, but you're just not in the office, sort of creates the space where you can get really efficient with how you do your job, right? Like if you're going to an office every day, you sort of like need to show up when everyone else is showing up and need to go home when everyone else is going home. But you're not necessarily like most productive for yeah, that some entire people are night period. owls. Some people, right, you know, right, they, they love right, sleeping in, but right. then they crush it late night. You know, exactly. Everyone has their own sort of optimized life, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, just even moving to a different city in the U.S. and working for the same employer, you get so much efficiency back because and you, you get creative, right? Right. right you go right, to a new coffee shop. Right, you go to a new bakery. You meet right, new connections. You're just right. like, wow, this is great. You know, it seems so exciting. And right. it's that whole effect that no one likes the place they grew up, right? You know, because everything's like, oh, I grew up in Albany, New York. Shout out! But it to me, it's it's just not the vibe, you know. Yeah. But when I moved to San Diego, I actually sky flew down. I was 22 years old. Um, when that company got shut down, I ended up just going back to school, finishing up, and then when it all went done, you were working for them when they got shut down. Yeah, yeah. It wow. Was, I was wow. In network marketing. Wow, yeah. wow, so wow. I literally lost a six-figure income overnight. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. 
big learning experience. Did you have like a cushion to fall on? No, or? no. Oh. I just thought it would, the checks would keep coming. Wow. You know, but thank God I learned about entrepreneurship and people early on because right. people just don't get that lesson. Right. That's why I think network marketing is the gateway drug to entrepreneurship. So for you to have that experience yeah. of like being around entrepreneurs at a young age, to me, that was the single handed right. just listening to your story, the most impactful experience of your life because you realize it's possible. And once you see someone that's like you, that's wears the same clothes, that has the same attitude, that has the cheapest little booth and they're just like chill people yeah. and you see like that guy can do it. Now, you know, for the rest of your life that if right. this dude can do it, I can do it too. And you look in the mirror and all of a sudden you realize it's possible. And once you know it's possible, then you get bit by the bug yeah. and you say, okay, let's do it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's that sort of um, the mindset is contagious, right? And so just getting around really ambitious people who have sort of, um, I don't know if you've heard the analogy of taking the third door, but have you? Taken, no. So it's like if you're going to a nightclub, there's like the door with the huge line that everyone who's not a somebody has to wait in. And then there's the second door where it's like, if you're on the list or you're like a celebrity, you get to go in through the second door. And some people go in the long line. Some people like, you know, go through the I'm somebody line. But a lot of people that are great entrepreneurs and sort of like cut a different path through life, find a third door. You know, they like figure out a way to get in that's not one of those two. And that analogy like shows up in a lot of places. Like you don't take either of the trodden paths and you're like, okay, what's the third door here? So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that on a podcast. I was like, that analogy makes a lot of sense, but it's you true. see that you see those people that are sort of like, I don't know, like Uber just going and launching in cities and not caring about the laws and being like, you know, we'll figure that out. Taking the party example. I mean, right. I do this all the time. If there's right. a huge line. The first thing you do is try to talk to the, the guys at the front door, right? You know, they're right. people, right? So right. maybe you can reason with them. Maybe right. you can come to a deal and maybe you can figure something out. You get to know what they're looking for and right. see if you can figure it. If you're trying to get your eight dudes and it's going to be tough, but there's always a possibility yeah. no matter what scenario you're in. So I love the taking the third door approach. I'm going to use that all the time. It's right. Amazing. Yeah. I forget what podcast I heard that on. But after I heard that, I've been asking myself a lot lately when there's like a problematic situation, you're like, oh, this sucks. Like, what's the third door option here? Like, how can I take the third door here? Like, not the, you know, standard weight in the line approach, not the I have to know somebody approach, but like the how can I just like figure out how to get this done and like think about the problem from first principles and just, you know, not accept no for an answer and just, you know, figure out how to do it like that, that, um, that mindset is really empowering in so many places. But it's also what I liked about it is that like when you're living in a hostel too, I yeah. think that that's really awesome because I had to live in a hostel when <laughs> right. we were going through rewrite labs in San Francisco. I was there for a month. Yeah. Um, I had like six weeks living in a hostel with like four, four people, right. four to eight people. It was pretty gnarly. But back then it was amazing. You know, yeah. I was 24. It was exciting. I was broke. Right. But just being in this whole atmosphere of, of being an accelerator, working for a startup, maybe one day could be worth something. Right. Which is really, really exciting. And I think that right. people need to have that experience because like sometimes when I look back at some of the best parts of my life was probably living in San Diego the, the year with Sky. I don't know, Sky, if you can agree with that. But I was living with it was four dudes in, in a two bedroom. It was not OK. Um, but everyone was just having so much fun. Me and Sky were actually splitting a room at the wow. time for $300 a month. Luckily, you had a girlfriend at the time. It made things easier. So you were never there. Um, I think we actually only 
yeah like, you split a room like yeah. two beds in the same room like two beds <laughs> like, yeah we were literally wow. just... like a guy sleeping in the living room and then one other guy had his own separate room wow and you guys met in san diego uh no we're from the same hometown oh wow okay so you went out to san diego together yeah. we met this Rad. we met through this guy named pete who started this company called you is nation where he threw like raves and stuff and basically they were having a big party in albany and they had seen me do a bunch of speaking engagements because of vima i would speak on stage and get people super hyped up and say like we out here and i love it i love public speaking right. i just love like emceeing and the vibe so Pete reached out to me and asked if I would MC this masquerade party. And there, the idea was it was like a masquerade theme. They're going to get A-Rab music and just blaze and have like robots and stuff. So I'm like, sure. So they, I flew home and they said, we need to make a commercial for the masquerade. And that's where I really met Sky. Like, like uh -huh. I actually met Sky. We like played each other in lacrosse, but we weren't friends. And we had to figure out a commercial. It was me, Sky, and these three like three go-go well, dancers three go-go dancers yeah and wow. uh we went to my friend was in college we went and used the school studio put together a storyboard on the spot filmed it and it's on youtube it lives live on youtube yeah, it's live on youtube <laughs> check it out masquerade and lenhart <laughs> yeah but that's how we met and i don't know where that tangent came from but yeah i when i just asked how you guys met because you guys yeah. said san diego but living oh. in san diego when i was dead broke like I met some of the best friends in my life and had so much fun, like right. just like great people. Right. And, uh, it just taught me a lot about just life and happiness. I feel like, right. Um, cause now that I have some money, it's like, obviously it's way better to have money than not. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, if you can be happy just in a simple lifestyle, it's awesome. And that's why I love what you're all about. The whole digital nomad thing. You're always chilling and just comfy clothes, good vibes, good energy. Like that's all the stuff you portray. Uh, I just, it, it's addicting. I mean, anyone that doesn't know you, you're definitely put off those most interesting man in the world vibes. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe. But I actually have been struggling with that recently. So, you know, for a long time, I'd always been of the mindset of just like super frugal and save like i you know had a full-time job when i was in high school saved all the money did buy a car but like other than that always saved everything and was just always super frugal and i took that from like being a broke college kid into like negotiating the salary and comp stock comp at my first job at porch i took like a thirty thousand dollar a year salary and just like basically most of the comp and stock and was like how can i live on thirty thousand dollars like never spent more than three thousand dollars on a car in my life the two cars I bought were 3000. I drove them for 10 years each, like that sort of thing. And that had been my like whole mindset of just being really frugal and happy with it and minimalist. And then man, like two, three years ago, Steph surprised me for my birthday. And it was in the middle of the pandemic. She booked this like $900 a night, gorgeous hotel room in St. Lucia. And we just went there we did a lot of drugs with an amazing view, like an outdoor bathtub under the star psychedelic drugs. Not, you know, not the bad kind, um, mushrooms. That's fine. But, yeah, yeah. We're, we're pro know, mushrooms recorded, but, um, yeah, someday they'll become legal. But, uh, I just like had never experienced that. I'd never, you know, I'd stayed in hostels. I was always just like, you just, never you know, experienced I just like had the mindset of like, I would thing. never spend more than a hundred dollars on a hotel room. And I came home from that and I was like, that was freaking amazing. Like, 
it was so worth the money that it caused. I was like blown away because, you know, we were like broke during COVID. Like we couldn't afford it. And it was like all the money she had, she just blew it on like a birthday surprise. And I was like, wow. Like, but the experience was like, okay. Like it leveled It's not up. just dumb to spend like $900 night in a hotel room. It's actually freaking awesome. Like it was a really memorable experience. And so I've been dipping my toe into more of that we have like over the last couple of years and then we got sort of lucky where you know i played it very wrong with the startup equity and i just got super lucky like the right way to play it if you really want to like hit it with startup equity is to bounce between probably like five different startups over 10 years go stay for two years your stock usually vests over four but you get 50% of your stock in two years. And startups are so like massive or zero that the financially smartest way to play it is to go vest equity for two years, move to a different startup, vest equity for two years. And then you basically got- Like ten, you hedge your bets. Yeah, yeah. You've got like 50% of your equity across five different companies. And one of those becomes a unicorn. And you, like as an early stage employee, you can be in the seven or eight, like low eight figures on like a small amount of equity. Yeah. So I, I didn't know that. I just put all my eggs in one basket, bet so hard on this one company and it it should not have made it and it did. Like the only reason we made it through was the SPAC boom and like the company just basically, if we didn't SPAC IPO, uh, I highly doubt we could have made it through. I think that's so interesting right? you mentioned the idea of, of if you take 10 year period, that's a great way of looking at it because right. it's... You never know at startups. You just never know. Like right. you could have the best team, you could have the brightest exactly. thing, but yeah. if the timing's not perfect, if things don't align, so much a lot luck. of things can then crush the deal. Right. You know? So just right. being able to diversify because that's how you build wealth. You have right. to own something. You have to own property. You have to own equity. You have to own right. a business. If you ever want to make true wealth, right? That, that's what all the business right. people teach, right? You can be super successful working for someone your whole life and have an amazing lifestyle but i feel that there, it's so hard to get to that next level until you become a business owner you become you start building out that team yeah and that can be joining a network marketing company just to get your foot in the door or all the way to building only finder you know yeah. and, and starting and scaling your own companies but i think it's fascinating these experiences that you have that ultimately gives you that confidence and that clarity because you mentioned if you don't know what you want to do working for startups the best thing you can do yeah right like when I joined Chewy at the time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just reached out to hundreds of startups saying, listen, I've done this, this, and this. I'll do whatever it takes. Ended right. up working for free for a year and a half. Eventually made it to a $500 a month salary while I was living with two dudes. Wow. Right? Like really just bumming it. That's amazing. Eventually man. we got into 500 startups, just me and the two founders. Wow. And then, uh, you know, and then eventually we got funded, moved out to Venice, did the whole thing, raised three and a half million dollars. And then fast forward a year and a half, we get acquired by Pangeum. And it was a sick story. You know? Wow. And that has given me some freedom and some ability to now do other things that I want to explore. And right. I think it's really important to go through that experience and be willing to fail and, and be the dumb person in the room. But as long as you're surrounding yourself with gangsters, people that have that ambition, like I, you mentioned that CEO who's all in, right? probably an amazing dude but i bet because he works so hard right the work-life balance he can come off as too much or like people like that can be like that because if you're not all in and you're talking to someone that's not all in they get frustrated at you and you get frustrated at them because right. they're expecting something that you're not willing to give 
Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes people that are really like that sort of like maverick CEO archetype who's just going to go up against really hard problems and just outgrind the problem and just will it into existence. Those people aren't necessarily like frustrating to be around, but it's just hard to keep up with like energetically, unless you want that, that same thing. It's like, you got to kind of decide, Hey, do you want to do that? And one of the biggest learnings I took away from porch is, wow, I, I thought I wanted to do that kind of company, like go raise venture capital money, build a big team, like, you know, the startup playbook that everyone, you know, thinks about, like come up with an app idea, raise VC money, build a big team. Like not for me, definitely for some people that just, you know, want that sort of really, really hard problem where you're taking a huge swing, but it is, it is huge trade-offs, like huge for sure. And it's not for everyone. Like some people are just wired that way. I think Matt, the CEO of Porch, he's got a wife and two kids and he's just an amazing dad and family man too. But he's just a freak that has like unlimited energy where he can just like be the most energetic guy in the company, work like crazy, crazy, crazy hours and then come home and be a super dad the too. The world's burning and he's just like, ah, right, hello, right, right, right. Like just, just some people, Friday. some people are wired like that and they're supposed to be like, you know, the crazy leaders of massive companies. But you know, 99% of people aren't like that. And if you aren't like that, doesn't mean you can't be an entrepreneur, but you just need to kind of decide like what, what game do I want to play? And, and I, I want to talk yeah. about, I, I love this conversation. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the, your current ventures. Cool. So let's, let's, I mean, dude, you're doing some big freaking things. <laughs> right. So right. You, you built this thing, you went through the IPO, you had this awesome experience, you moved to LA. Right. And then eventually like you run into a wall that ends up, you end up in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, when we, when Steph and I moved to, to LA, I had still doing that thing where I had negotiated basically the rock bottom survival salary that made sense when I was single, you know, with a roommate in Seattle and then moved to LA, which had like twice as high of a cost of living. So that was already kind of like a squeeze. And then, um, Steph has taught me a lot about not delaying happiness, right? And so I started to learn about the value of spending on really meaningful experiences. And we just ran through all of our money. And then we, we finally capped it off. We went to Burning Man. Um, she bought us tickets and we're like, we're going to Burning Man. It's like, we can't afford it. She's like, we're going. And so we go, like, I think we probably spent like fifteen or $20,000 on the experience of Burning Man between like renting an RV, which is really hard and like to do it right and really have a good time. It's expensive to do. And it was freaking amazing. I thought it was crazy at the time. I was like, how are we going to spend this much money on something? We can't afford this. Literally just put it on a credit card. But like, this is the most irresponsible stuff ever. It goes against everything I've ever known. It was the best experience of my life. Like the best eight days of my life. So amazing. And we were just completely broke. Like got home to LA, $400 in the checking account, minus 20,000 on the credit card. I was like, all right, like we'll figure this out. That was dope. Yeah. But <laughs> we like emailed our landlord and we're like, my credit card has a hangover. Yeah. Yeah. So I just told, we had an expensive apartment in, in LA. I think our rent was like $3,900 at the time, which sounded crazy to me, but it was hard. Like LA was really expensive at yeah. the time relative to Seattle or a lot of other cities. And we just emailed our landlord who lived in France and was like, yo, we're broke. 
<laughs> like we literally can't pay the rent. We're like six months into a 12 month lease. We're like, we'll help you find a sublease, but like, you know, we're gone in a week. And so we just, we just like, uh, I mean, technically we were on the hook to pay the, you know, pay the rent for the whole, yeah. whole lease legally. But we were like, Hey, we're going to find you a sublease. We like listed the apartment. Yeah. We, we, we literally like, you know, interviewed people and showed the house and got another renter and just like, you know, sent the info off. Like, here's the renter that's going to replace us. And we just moved to Mexico. (laughs) We're like, okay, we're going to cut our cost of living to basically zero and dig our way back out of it at the time. And then, yeah, still working at porch, still working at porch. So I had like a salary and an income. Yeah. It was just like, you know, we were spending more than, than we made at the time. So, which sounds crazy and I regret zero of it. Actually, if anything, looking back, I would have been like going like investing in your personal development, go into more debt, like screw it. The, the utility of money to you when you're, you know, in your mid twenties and you're at that stage of life, like the utility of a dollar is so high in terms of like just the value and richness and experiences and memories it puts in your life. And, if you're an entrepreneurial person, you're, you know, you're confident in your abilities and you know, you're going to be able to earn a lot of money, like go into debt (laughs) when you're like, when you're young, just do it. And you'll be blown away by how much easier it is as you get older to generate income. Like at some point, I mean, don't go crazy with it. It was kind of irresponsible to run up credit card debt. Um, and like we got that paid off really fast, but I mean, as a rule, I don't think enough people think about the utility of a dollar like 30 I'm 30 years old now and we have like a dog and a cat and we just bought furniture for the first time which furniture is so much more expensive than you think <sighs> it's crazy like we'd always just like been kind of like living out of backpacks and we finally rented uh, an unfurnished apartment in Miami we were like screw it we'll buy furniture and then eight months later we're just gonna throw it in a storage unit and then go backpacking <laughs> again but um I kind of lost my, my train of thought. Yeah, you rented a dog and a cat. And oh yeah. Yeah. But, but even like the difference being, being 30 years old now versus when I was like 25, there's less things that you can just go do. Like I'm already feeling the declining utility of money. And I know like, you know, when you're 60 or 70, you can barely get up out of a chair. So if you have like $10 million, what's it really worth to you if it's not fun to go get on a plane and go like, you know, travel and all that kind of thing. Cause you're just kind of tired and your bones hurt. Yeah. But like, you know, you just, you, you have a house, you're a homeowner, like you've got roots, right. And you know, a dollar to you now has less things you can do because you've got roots and you've got this house to like take care of. And you know, you got the podcast in your studios here. There's a lot of like stationary roots here. Whereas, earlier stages in life, I'm sure, you know, you had total freedom. You could go do your thing from anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And so like, if you think about what a dollar was worth to you then and how much joy and experience it got, got you, it's, it's a lot higher than it is now. So I I think people don't think about, well, imagine if people put $250,000 of their college career into experiences like that. Right. Right. Yeah. No student, student loans are crazy. I mean, but I think the big message though here (laughs) that everyone's missing is that you have inherently developed a skill set throughout your life, right? right, Where you knew that you could go make money anywhere. Right. 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 So you racking up $20,000 in credit card debt wasn't a big deal because you knew you could get yourself out of that relatively in an effective way. Right. Now, for people listening, y'all be gotta be, you gotta be careful with that. <laughs> yeah, don't do but that. The thing but, with personal development is definitely so real. Like, right. I love network marketing because it's like personal development with a payment plan. Right. right. 
Um, so I essentially have my own business, work for a business, and then been in network marketing. Right. And most people make fun of MLM because you know it's positioned as a pyramid scheme. Um, I, I will say, out of all my different life experiences, there is no better tasting and feeling money than than MLM money because it's just you build a team of great people right. that are all encouraging you to grow, be positive. And what's great about it is it forces entrepreneurs to come together. Like what we did in Vima, it, it basically was this like business podcast. I mean, uh, this fraternity, like a business fraternity that developed amongst all of these 16 to 30 year old people where only the entrepreneur people wanted to do the business, right? So you developed these clans, then you met these other groups from other teams. So even when Vima got shut down, those people went on to develop amazing companies and do really cool shit. Wow. And it inspires you because you're like, I knew him when he was broke or when they didn't do that. And uh, I just think getting that bug and you got right. bit by that bug. So eventually you actually wanted to figure out a way to probably start funding this cool lifestyle that you <laughs> yeah, mentioned. You yeah. wanted to get these $900 yeah. places. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, moving to Mexico was, it was fine. Like it was, you know, just that brought expenses below income. And it was like, okay, we'll just stay here until we figure it out. Um, and so what felt really scary at the time of just like basically having no money and a lot and credit card debt was just not scary at all. And I'm super grateful for the experiences living in Mexico it was amazing. Um, and then, um, you know, just carried through at porch for a while. Um, but I'd always had side projects along the way. So a couple of guys that worked at porch with me, we started like the first company we started was a rug company. We made rugs for sneakerheads. Uh, basically took like prints off Air Jordans and put them on rugs and then like uh, pushed them out in like sneaker communities. The first time we launched it, we did like $20,000 in sales on the first day. We were like, whoa, <laughs> this is crazy. Um, and then it turned out that that was just a really small market. Like I think we only ever did like 200,000 in total revenue in that company because there's just like a pretty small market of sneakerheads and then a pretty small market of sneakerheads that love their sneakers enough that they're like, I want an elephant print rug for my Jordan closet shrine. And so it was, it was funny. We were like, this is great. This is like how we do so much sales. And like, it wasn't 20,000 the first day, 20,000 in the first week. Um, but you know, that That's was in awesome. one week. Yeah. Yeah. That's but then like the total lifetime revenue of that company over like two or three years was like under 250,000. So good, good lesson there. Like good learnings. It was a Shopify site. Uh, I actually totally forget. Oh, we did PR. PR was like the main way we just got in like sneakerhead magazines cause it was just something kind of like unique and got a lot of traffic, um, through that. And then I actually sold my share of that to my two co-founders cause I realized I was like, this is capping out. It's not, it's not big. And then, uh, along the way did some websites in the cannabis space when cannabis was first becoming legal in the U S that grew really big, um, really quickly. We had like the largest basically, uh, grow product review site. So if you wanted to like grow weed, we had like, you know, grow light reviews, grow tent reviews, that kind of thing. We were like number one in Google for all of those. And that really quickly grew to about 20, 25 grand a month in affiliate fees at like 98% margin. Cause it's just, you know, ranking an SEO and you take a click off Google hand a click to like Amazon who buys or like where they buy like the grow lights and grow tents and all that and just collect your affiliate fee. So that, 
that worked well and was exciting, but we had like a team of four people on that and that capped out really quickly. Cause once you're number one in Google, you know, there's no number zero, you can't rank any higher. So that was kind of like the cap of that business. And what we watched happen, we were early on that. Like we, we launched that, you know, right when cannabis first started becoming legal in Colorado and Washington. And then it just kind of grew with, you know, the cannabis market becoming legal in the U S and then we just watched over the next couple of years, so many people started launching websites to compete with us and spending like hundreds of thousands, even millions of dollars to go get the same traffic. And the margins just got competed straight to zero in that. It was like a crazy experience of something shooting up so fast, producing so much. I mean, at the time, like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars a month felt like really good, you know, profit margin because we were like, you know, still living on like low incomes and all that. But just to see how quickly when competition comes in, no one makes money. It's just like everyone competes, everyone's margins to zero. And it's like, why are we all doing this? <laughs> like we're working so hard to just stay in the same place because it's a zero sum game. Um, you're going to ask a question. Yeah. Do you yeah. feel like it seems like AdWords is like your specialty, almost like you seem like organic, you, organic. Or, organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit more about that? Like, did you learn that at Porsche? Or yeah. Did you... So funny story. I was like the first year or two at Porsche, I was like, working in marketing, which you know, I had no background in. I was like, you know, a nerdy engineering student, mechanical engineering, which is like useless for, you know, software websites. But I was just kind of like learning marketing because that's what Ronnie was doing. And I wanted to learn from Ronnie. And then there was this guy, Darren Nakuda, who's like in the tech community in Seattle. He's kind of like famous there. He's been the CEO of a bunch of companies. He was like between things. And so he came as a product manager and started to build an SEO team at Porch. And then as that SEO team was like five engineers and him running it, he decided to leave and he started like went and started some AI company after that. And there was a vacuum and I was just like, I'll take over. <laughs> and so like jumped into it, had no idea, you know, what I was doing, being a product manager, managing software engineers, but just kind of like learned from doing. And that team's job was, was to grow, grow SEO. And I had like, you know, no idea how to do it. Went to an SEO. That. That's yeah. a great lesson. If, <laughs> yeah. if you don't know how to do it, take the job, say yes, and then learn. Yeah. So like went to an SEO conference, um, called like MozCon in Seattle, started reading all the SEO blogs and sort of had this realization that just seems like no one knows what they're talking about. And like, it just had this weird feeling to it. Like this industry is just a bunch of experts trying to act like experts, but like really no one knows how Google search algorithm really works. So I just spent a lot of time. You can actually read Sergey Brin and Larry Page, the guys who started Google, were just PhD students at Stanford and they just wrote a thesis paper. It's like nine pages. And they're like, this is a design for a search engine that's going to be better than Yahoo. And like, it's the entire system design of Google and it still works like that. Like no one in the SEO industry knows like, every conference, every SEO blog, like they need news and like what's the fad in SEO to stay in business because they need to sell conference tickets or they need to get, you know, traffic to the SEO blog. But the reality is basically the Google founders just had a freaking genius invention and it's so good. They've barely had to change it in like 20 years. So I just spent like so many hours reading that like nine page um, it's called the anatomy of a search engine. You can Google it. It's still like hosted on Stanford's website. It's the, you know, when Sergey Brin and Larry Page were college students, 
this is like their idea and they, they just documented how Google's going to work. And it just works like that still. <laughs> it's crazy. If you read it, like the first time I read it, I understood maybe 1% of it because those dudes are like, like, you know, it seems like they're speaking a different language when they're talking about the technical stuff they're talking about. But first time I read it, I understand it maybe 1%. Second time I like, you know, I read it, I understand it another 1%. And then after reading it a bunch, I was kind of like, okay, I kind of get how this, this system works. And you sort of realize that what Google does is actually really freaking hard. Like it's so technically hard to crawl the whole web, understand what every page means, understand which ones are more important and rank them well. Like Google's not some omniscient, like crazy thing. It's just something engineers built and it's really freaking hard. And so if you actually just, you know, read that document and understand what's hard for a search engine, like what makes it difficult for a search engine to know how to, which results to return for a given search. And you just make your website, make it easy for it. It ranks high. So I kind of learned that. So that's, that's to sum it up. <laughs> yeah. If you can make your page super easy for Google to crawl, find it and do those things. It's going to help it rank. Yeah, but those things you said about crawl, find it, have it rank, like the, that's the language that most people who like have read SEO blogs or gone to SEO conferences will like will speak in terms of. There's a different sort of thing where if you just like read the thesis paper that those guys wrote and they're like, here's the really hard problem that Yahoo hasn't been able to figure out and here's our idea for how to make it harder and here's all the things that are really hard about it and here's how we're going to try to solve those and you just like read that a bunch you get this intuition for like okay I really understand like here's the things that are fundamentally hard about this and you get this kind of intuition for ways to make it easier that it's it's at like a much deeper level of that so if anyone wants to get SEO ignore every SEO blog never go to an SEO conference it's all noise. It's useless. Just like read the design document and understand how it's built. And you'll just like intuitively know how to make it easier for the search engine to rank you high. Man, I'm going to read this right after. <laughs> I'll, I'll link that guy. Let's make a note to link that in the show notes. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, long and short of it too, is if you want to have stuff rank high in SEO, you got to spend money on link building too. Link because, building. Yeah. Like that, that was the, the page rank algorithm which is based on how pages are interlinked um, is like the key breakthrough that made Google better than everything else. So that's having other websites have your link on it. Yeah. Yeah. So like before Google, there was like Alta Vista and some random search engines and Yahoo was really big at the time. Yahoo actually like ranked pages with human curation. So is this interesting to go I'm back obsessed. into the history yeah, of search engines? Going, okay, please, cool. Please, so like <laughs> zoom back to 1998 or 1997, the year before Google was invented. Like the web was growing exponentially quickly and you have these like, you know, Yahoo was the leading search engine company at the time. And like at first you could just crawl the web and return documents that were relevant to the keyword because the web wasn't that big. But as that web was getting exponentially bigger, all of a sudden like a given keyword would have like tens of thousands of results, right? And you had these really weird things where Initially, search engines worked by uh, an algorithm called document keyword relevance. So given a keyword that you searched, score this document on how relevant it is. And you had really weird things like in 1997, if you went to Yahoo and you typed Bill Clinton into the search engine, the president at the time, what would return is a like blank white page with the word Bill Clinton on it because it was like a 100% relevance match for that keyword, right? 
Cause like that's how search engines work. They just found the most relevant document for the keyword. And like when 100% of the ta- text on the page exactly matches the keyword. So like literally the number one result for the president of the United States on is that, is like a page literally a blank Bill pages of Bill Clinton. <laughs> so like it had those problems and then Yahoo was trying to solve those problems from saying, okay, we need to figure out how to identify high quality web pages. You mean Google or Yahoo? Yahoo at Yahoo, the time. Okay. Yahoo was like, cause they were the big search engine at the time. And they were like, how do we figure out quality? Like we can understand what a web page is about, like what are the keywords and what, what keywords is it relevant to? But like, how do we understand that like the whitehouse.gov page about Bill Clinton that has a bunch of other text, but you know, is, is probably a much more relevant page than this blank white one. And there's this subjective human thing about like, you look at it, that's a high quality page. And you look at this one and it's like a junk worthless page. So Yahoo is actually trying to solve it with human curators scoring pages by quality. Just QAing. Yeah, because it's pages. a really, really hard problem. Like you can look at a web page and so be like, that's like beautiful. Thousands of people just annotating that's, pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like literally. And so it's a really hard problem for a computer to like get this subjective notion of that's a high quality page and that's not. And the Google founders, Sergey Brin and Larry Page had this idea of like, why don't we just let the internet vote on what high quality pages are? And on top of that, why don't we, you know, not build something where people have to come to us and vote, but let's just go observe the internet and find out how the internet has already voted. And all we have to do is just count the votes. And so they had the idea that, hey, when one page gets linked to by a lot of other pages, like that tends to be a really high quality page because other people are citing it. And so it's essentially like the links from one website to another website or one page to another page are essentially a vote. It's like, okay, if I link to you, I'm essentially voting that I, I think this content is worthy and I want to share it with my audience. So that was like the insight. And then they did a really smart thing, which is it's it's a weighted voting algorithm. So like if I just go launch a website tomorrow, it's like a nothing website. If I go link to something, that link shouldn't be worth very much. Like that vote shouldn't be worth very much because it would be really easy to game the system because I could just make thousands of websites like tomorrow programmatically and go link them to my website if I wanted to game the system and be at the top. So the key insight um, the Google founders had was to weight the voting. So like one link to another website is weighted based on how many links are coming into that website. So like take CNN.com that has like billions of other websites linking to it. A link out of CNN will be a billion times more impactful than if I go launch a website tomorrow and link to it. So getting like a big newspaper like Forbes yep. to link yep. your stuff yep. is the most powerful thing. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a voting system where the internet votes, but your vote is weighted based on how many other people already link to you. If that makes sense. Love that. So like backlink strategy is really how can you get as much publication such as PR or big agencies or something that has these popular votes. Right. These like straight behemoths to to link to you. Right. And that'll trick Google. Not trick them, but optimize towards your potential stuff. Yeah. The most useful way to think about it is ranking at the top of Google is like trying to win an election. You're just trying to get more votes than all the other search results. The only difference is that the votes are weighted. It's not like every vote is equal. Like you want to go get bigger websites to link to you because a link from one website might be worth a thousand times what a link from another website is. Man, so, I thank you for giving that background. Yeah. I know that was a tangent, but <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, learned yeah. so much yeah. from that. But that's it. Like that was the original system design. And that's like 90% of what drives ranking today still. 
like you got to have good enough content, but really it's like mind blowing how much links still drive it. And Google tries really hard in their PR to say it's all these other things. Like, don't worry about links, just make great content. Like if you build it, they will come make great content because Google has massive engineering teams to deal with the cat and mouse game of people, you know, gaming the algorithm. So Google's whole, the calculus, if you're Google is okay, I can invest in thousands of more engineers to keep playing this cat and mouse game, you know, with all the people that are trying to game the algorithm that's really hard. It's just like a forever process where we keep having to hire more and more engineers to keep having to like fix the ways that everyone's figuring out how to game the algorithm. And then they just sort of realized, like, I think this was more than a decade ago that people were just gaming the link system so hard. They're like, okay, screw it. We're just going to do a couple public hangings and then scare everyone away from doing this. Because before they did this, you could just go like, pay a link farm in Russia to link like thousands of links to your website and you would go to number one and everyone was doing that. And so they picked out a couple big companies that were doing it. I think BMW was doing it. And then like there was, I think JC Penney was doing it. And there was like the British competitor of 100 flowers that were doing it that were like basically getting links from link farms to go rank at the top of Google and Google just deleted them out of Google search results and like BMW was fine and JCPenney were fine because they have retail businesses, but that British competitor to one hundred flowers went bankrupt, went out of business and Google deleted them. So Google just did some public hangings and we're like, don't game the link algorithm. And they're like, now we've got a team that's going to like, look, if you're doing links, ma'am, and we're going to ban you and delete your business. And so Google just kind of keeps doing that. Like yeah. in all their PR, they're just like, you know, anything Google tells you not to do, they're probably telling you not to do that because it's effective and it's much easier to scare you out of doing it than try to have their engineers like, you know, fight it. If that makes sense. Yeah, so. no, that, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's extra top of mind for cigars.com because you can't use um, a lot of these like search engines like Instagram and Facebook don't right. let you say cigar or post about tobacco. Right. So, you know, we even have to think about creative ways to build the brand and get the brand out because we can't use traditional methods. Right. Um, so that I was extra curious about the backlinks for that reason. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've done cannabis. I've done bait pens. I've done adult content, all the stuff you yeah, can do. Yeah, we need to talk after yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I do want to yeah, get in. Yeah. And I, uh, I want to get into like what you're currently working on. Cool. Yeah. And if very interesting projects. Right. So just always had like while i was working at porch i always had one or two different side projects just an idea you spin up a shopify site for like 10 bucks a month you like you know build some links to it either it has legs or it doesn't and actually when the pandemic happened uh and like twitch was taking off and streaming and all of that so one thing i had always heard from software engineers i worked with was that like porn is like the leading edge of the internet every technology that's ever been invented for like you know video streaming that kind of thing like that was invented for porn first and then like got adapted to youtube and that kind of thing and like 15 of the top 50 websites on the internet by traffic are porn sites Today? it's like yeah it's freaking massive it's like you know no one wants to talk about it but it's huge humans be crazy right <laughs> so like um y'all dirty people out yeah, there one of the ideas uh it's actually steph's idea was like like you know, Twitch is blowing up so big. Like what's the adult version of that? Cause this is COVID everyone's stuck in their house. Like that's going to blow up. So webcam modeling is basically just the porn version of like Twitch. Um, and so we built a site called ready set cam that 
was like to teach people about the webcam modeling industry if they wanted to get into it. So like if you wanted to be a webcam model and make money at home being a webcam model, it's a really like opaque industry. There's like 20 different cam sites. Like you have no idea which one's better to be on and that kind of thing. And so it was a really easy opportunity to just be like, okay, let's just go figure out like what the earnings of cam models are on different cam sites and go publish it on the web. And like, that'll be a really useful resource. So we got, there's like huge Reddit communities, by the way, amazing tool. If you want to start businesses, there's a tool called Reddit list. I think it's just redditlist.com. But if you just go into Reddit list and you search any keyword, it'll show you like, you know, the trending subreddits by that keyword. And you can even just not search a keyword and it will like show you, you know, the fastest growing subreddits and that kind of thing. Anytime there's a subreddit that's like growing or it's big, like there's definitely a business opportunity on that one. And so like the webcam model, like subreddits, which are basically just webcam models talking to each other, like talking about those, like, you know, what are you guys doing? You know, whatever people do to like, you know, talk about other people working at the same gig economy stuff. We got in those communities and we just like tried to help. We like read the questions and we're like, okay, these are the questions everyone has made a survey monkey survey, which is like, okay, here's what we're going to do. Everyone is going to anonymously just answer what campsite they use, like how many hours they work, how many years they've been doing it for what they earn. We'll anonymize the answers and we'll just post it back here because you know, everyone wants to know, am I on the best campsite? Like, could I be earning more money somewhere else? So we just like did that survey blew up, got like 500 responses was at like the top of the subreddit for like, you know, like a week. Um, and then got really good data on that. And then like published really good content on the website with kind of like the, you know, like full rundown of everything you need to know about the webcam modeling industry. And was anyone doing that already or no, was it just no, you? No one was doing that. So it basically like, I mean, that business model can be applied anywhere, which is like, um, probably the best way to think about it is the internet always trends towards monopolies, right? Like there's one YouTube and no one will ever compete with YouTube because it's a compounding monopoly. There's one Facebook, there's one Instagram, there's one TikTok. They all do different things, right? But uh, between when something starts and when it converges on monopoly, there's a bunch of competitors and they're going to spend all of their money on customer acquisition. Like until, until you get a monopoly in the internet, all profit is spent on customer acquisition. And so, there's not a lot of money to be made in areas where monopolies are already formed. But if you can just go find a space where there's like 10 similar competitors all vying for the same, you know, one of them is going to eventually be the monopoly that rules all. Um, in the cam site space, it's in that stage where there's like 15 or 20 different webcam modeling sites that are all kind of like vying to be like, you know, become the YouTube of their category. And if you just go into a space like that and put yourself at the customer acquisition step, like that's where all of those companies are spending their entire profit is on customer acquisition. So doubling down. Yeah. Right, right. So you're like, okay, if I can just go build traffic, that's like going to be people who want to sign up for those sites. I can just sell my traffic to them. So you're and selling them leads basically. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And that works anytime there's basically the monopoly hasn't converged yet in a given is category that like what bookings.com does and like these like different airlines and like uh right places that right. aggregate and, and right. find you a search spot. right right like any sort of like emerging category that's new like the end state in the internet is always a monopoly unless there's like you know geographic you know governmental constraints that say like you know this company can only operate in this country and so there'll be a different company in this country 
sometimes there'll be like, you know, more than one because you can have a geographic monopoly. But for most things on the internet, it's just going to be a global monopoly. One business will win in the end, always does. But almost any new category, like anything you can think of that's like an emerging industry, will have like 30 companies running at it. They raise a bunch of VC money, they spend all that VC money on customer acquisition, and then they just fight to the death, blowing all their money on customer acquisition, and then you know the other half on engineering, and then one survives. But along the way, the people selling the traffic to them, like they take all the profit in the industry because all the you know companies trying to grow aren't really making profit. They're losing money, burning VC money, paying you know their traffic sources. So anyway, um, kind of saw that like the webcam modeling space. Okay, there's like 15 websites that all probably you know there's a lot of revenue, there's a lot of venture capital money here. No one has won yet. They're going to be blowing stupid amounts of money on customer acquisition. So we just built like a reviews and education site. So if you're like a webcam model and you want to get into it, we built like the best resource for you to like learn about the industry and like which, you know, which cams that you should go to if you want to earn the most money and that kind of thing. Got a lot of traffic, sold it to the cam sites. We would get like, you know, a cam model would sign up for a cam site and that cam site would pay us like 10 or 20% of that model's earnings for like a year or even lifetime. And like webcam models earn a lot. So the, like the results of that survey, like, at the time, this was like the beginning of COVID before they printed 50% more dollars. So money was worth more back then. But like the average annual salary of someone working full time in the industry was like $130,000 a year. So like if you sign someone up for one of the websites and the campsite's going to pay you 10% commission on that, it's like one customer can be worth like $10,000 lifetime value. So wow, we're like, wow, <laughs> this is great. Um, and so you know, just kept running with that, wanted to be like number one in Google for best cam sites and that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of like, you know, weird doing something in the adult porn space because like things around that feel kind of icky. Yeah. Because um, like when but, I met you, you're like as unicky as it gets. You're <laughs> right. like, yeah, I'm, I'm vegan. Like I, I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> you're all in on it. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, right? Like I feel like porn is one of those things that probably, you know, 60% of the world does or more and no one wants to talk about right, it. Right, but it seems right. like the OnlyFans thing made like <laughs> normalized porn. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, um, and that was, uh, as we kind of like capped out number one in Google for, for best cam sites, you know, we're looking on ways to grow. And one of the other things about SEO is if you build authority and you build links around a given topic, you can then like launch pages in additional, cat like adjacent categories and you'll just rank number one on that really quickly. So like, for example, when we had like the grow equipment website for cannabis, we were number one for like best, you know, LED grow lights, best grow tents. We could go launch an article for like, you know, best vape pens and it would be number one in Google in like a couple months because we'd already built the authority on the topic. And it's the same thing in this. So we had built the authority around, uh, around webcam models. And we just like made an article that was like, here's the 50 best OnlyFans, you know, accounts, just like a listicle. And that was like quickly number one in Google for that. And then over time, we just had people like, you know, we just made the article for free and just listed what were actually the top, you know, 50 by like, you know, most popular, or most likes or whatever. And then people started reaching out being like, hey, can I be like advertised in this list? And then quickly that became bigger than, than the campsite side of the business. And then we saw the same thing happening that I saw in the grow lights industry where a lot of people started waking up to this, though we were the first mover in the space, like, you know, a ton of competitors started coming in, like spending money to try to grow into the space. I was like, oh man, like 
uh, this was going great, but the margins are going to get computed to zero. Like this whole thing is happening again. So what we did differently this time is we just started buying out the competitors. And so um, OnlyFinder was actually an acquisition because it was you know ranking well. So generally in organic search, like you search something, there's 10 links in Google, right? Like those, like that search volume over those 10 links is kind of like a fixed sum, right? And you have to spend money on link building to be high in that. And as it gets more and more competitive, like there's a fixed amount of traffic at the top of the funnel, a fixed amount of revenue, and people are spending more and more money to try to rank for that. And then the margins just get squeezed. And the only way to really defend against that happening is if you just own all of it. If you just like, you know, you own every website in the top 10, then you just don't spend your margins to zero and then you can have a sustainable margin. And so that's, that's what we've, we've been doing is basically like maintaining number one positions and then like watching very closely everyone else who's coming up and then we'll make acquisition offers when, um, when a site is like doing well. Did you have to raise money for it? No, no bootstrap. Like, well, I was working so these, at Porch. These companies like, that you're yeah. acquiring aren't like asking for ridiculous amounts. Uh, it's gotten large now. Um, I can say definitely, you know, um, you know, mid six figure deals for sure. Um, but I think to start it, like the budget I would normally put at starting these little side project experiments probably like costs like two to $3,000 initially to just like $10 Shopify website. I would write the first couple articles myself and then I would go spend like 500 bucks a month on link building. And then you would see like, hey, it's just getting traction and you just kind of like double down on the traction. So um, the way you say it right there makes it seem so simple. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And so like if this one didn't work, you know, it would have been there, there would have been 10 more experiments. Because you but figured like, out a, a repeatable process to eventually find a winner. Right. Right. And like the, the funny thing is like whether you win or not is kind of up to skill. But like how many zeros are on the size of the outcome is totally luck. Like we just got really lucky with, um, I mean, OnlyFans is 10 times bigger than the campsites thing that we started with and just like happened to be first there and caught a wave that was freaking massive. But I think there's something to that just sort of like shots on goal thing, like especially in, in internet things, like it's up to your skill whether or not you can actually make a business work and make it profitable. But whether it does like 5,000 in revenue a month or 500,000 in revenue a month is just luck of timing and market. That's not really up to you. Like, yeah, you can pick those things, but the problem is like when a market is obviously lucrative, it's already crowded, right? So like you generally, unless you have some huge competitive advantage to go enter an already crowded space and outcompete because you've got some special thing that's going to generate margin that no one else has figured out. You generally need to go into like emerging spaces and you just don't know how big it's going to be or like whether um, your your place in the stack is going to be where the profit accrues. Right. Yeah. 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 Man, you should teach this stuff. Like, <laughs> this is really good. Do you teach? Do you talk a lot about this type of stuff on podcast shows or anything? First podcast ever. Let's yeah. go. The damn yeah. good day show. Bringing <laughs> yeah. on new talent over here. Yeah. Straight scouting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, it's 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 great. I mean, I'm I'm sitting here. I this is probably the most quiet I've been on a podcast. I'm just <laughs> listening. I I could go so much deeper with the $500 month and backlinks and all this type of stuff. But I just love what you're talking about in that. You're truly like the definition of what an entrepreneur is. You find, you think of an idea, you test it in the market, you th put it in an experiment, you see if it gets traction for under two thousand dollars, 
And you do that every time you get a good idea. And then over time, you have these little babies, these seedlings, these little plants, and you're seeing which ones are growing and which ones have weeds around them. And you're just growing and growing and watering and, and doing it. And it seems like learning that AdWords space, that SEM space really programmed your mind. Are you a, a coder as well? Do you like code at all? No. Like I know enough to do it and to be able to kind of like I can, well, at Porch, my job was like I was a product manager. So I worked with you know, teams of engineers yeah. and we talk about what to build. I would sort of like bring the business outcome and be like, here's the business outcome we you need to build. Pro- here's the requirements. Yeah. And so like, I, you know, I, I spent every day for like seven or eight years working with software engineers. So I like know the language. That's an amazing skill set, And you probably have a deep network of people that, you know, just crush it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's helpful um, for sure. But you know, I, I know like HTML and CSS taught myself that like I can go, um, you know, fix a website but you don't really need any of that like in today's I, age you don't right yeah and what, which which websites do you recommend for people that make the experience really easy for building you, websites? use shopify so like so many people use wordpress excuse me uh, soda burp shout out with troy <laughs> yeah um so many people use WordPress. It's like the default that everyone uses. WordPress is horrible. It's a nightmare. You have to spend so much money on hosting. It's all clunky. Like it's just always breaking. It's always getting hacked. For $10 a month, you can have a Shopify store with unlimited traffic on it. The hosting is included in it. It's like one of the best engineering teams in the world. It's like thousands of engineers working on making your website better. It's like mobile friendly. It's super fast. It crushes it in SEO. I use Shopify sites for not even, not even things that sell e-commerce. So if you just want to blog, like build it on Shopify, because you just Shopify's engineering team is just going to make your website awesome. So a lot of times I'll just get a Shopify template. You know, it's $10 a month starting out, delete the shopping cart off of there, like delete the product sales functionality and use that framework as a blog because it just, it, you know, it's mobile friendly. It loads super fast. It, it will scale infinitely. So we've got, what would you do you like square at all? Have you ever used square? Cause we host on square. Used a bunch of them. Like it's just there's no comparison. Just look at the size of the engineering team behind Shopify versus like Wix or Square or anything. Um, well, actually, no. Sorry, I was thinking of Squarespace. Yeah, yeah. You have Squarespace, not Square. Yeah, Square Online is like their their thing. Like Square, the credit card charging company. Yeah, yeah. Oh well, they're huge. So I bet their stuff is great too. Yeah. But like Squarespace, we, we had the right. damn good day show on Shopify, but right. um, I switched it to Webflow and it was a huge mistake. Really? Because I built like a custom website and it's so gangster. If you go to like networkpodcasting.com, it's like yeah. this awesome funnel that was selling a podcasting course right. I made. But it started to break and I just got upset with it. And like I just, I started, I didn't spend enough time with it because it just annoyed me because I needed an engineer to fix it. And that's an issue, especially if you're not a tech dude, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Same. Like, so that's, I mean, maybe other things work well but it just doesn't i don't understand why you would use anything other than shopify i didn't actually didn't know that square had website builders you know but they're a world-class software company they're on the leading edge if they're coming out with like website builders for small businesses it's going to be amazing too right um but so that's maybe great square, that you know that with shopify yeah, yeah. What, what other industries fascinate you like you see like these entrepreneurs making like digital nomad type money because i kind of want to frame it back to that you're doing the world traveling thing yeah and you had that experience where, you know, you spent $900 and you're like, you know what? That was a huge, like learning. It like leveled up what you knew life could be. Right. You going to Burning Man leveled up what life could be. It made right. you think bigger. 
And now all of a sudden you can travel the world because you're doing these online businesses essentially and you're, and you're doing it remotely, right? which is amazing. It's the dream. What do you do with your animals, by the way? Uh, our dog comes with us everywhere and our cat, we're figuring that out. So like we're going to Spain, um, like next week and the EU is being weird about cats. Well, our dog's a service dog. So we like, you know, get her around all the rules through that, which like most Western countries are good with, but we're just kind of aggressive about it. Like just take her everywhere. She's 20 pound mini Husky. So she can kind of like, you know, she's not like a, you know, a big burden, um, sometimes, you know, Airbnb hosts can be weird about it. We've definitely gotten some bad reviews and had to like burn some Airbnb accounts. Um, cause you know, sometimes you just need a place to stay and like no one allows dogs and you just gotta, you know, sneak her in in a duffel bag. Um, uh, which no animal cruelty. Like she's definitely been in a duffel bag once, but it was about 30 seconds to get in the door <laughs> of an Airbnb. <laughs> um, but you know, generally speaking, you can, you can kind of take your dog everywhere. The only thing is in Latin America, we've definitely had to like bribe to like get her on a plane before, but third door, you know, you just say, Hey, I'm taking my dog. I don't care what the rules are. It's just like, Hey, I'm here and I have the dog. Like, are you just gonna leave me on the street? (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, and we, we would do the same with our cat, but she hates traveling. Like our dog loves traveling. She's so good on planes. She wants to be with us everywhere. Our cat, like I take her to the vet and she's just like screaming in the cat carrier the whole time. She just hates leaving the apartment. Yeah. So that's, that's different. Yeah. That's something we got to figure out because we don't have like roots or a home base. Well, cats can comfortably at some level be okay for a few days. For sure. For sure. Yeah. This, this funny story behind this cat, actually, we were in uh, Machu Picchu on like Christmas, uh, not this Christmas, but the one before. And it's like Christmas day after we hiked Machu Picchu and the town of Aguas Calientes there is just completely empty because it's like Latin America on a Catholic holiday. Everyone's with their families. So I'm like, Steph and I are in a hotel room and I want to go get a bottle of wine. So I go walk out into the town and it's just no one there. And I find like one shop where it's like a little corner store and the whole family that owns the store is like in there drinking together, like celebrating Christmas. I'm like, Hey, can I buy a bottle of wine? Let me buy a bottle of wine. I'm like walking back home. And in the empty streets, there's this cat following me, just meowing, meowing, meowing. And it's like a stray cat. And I'm like, why is this cat following me meowing? For three blocks, the cat follows me. I finally turn around and it just lets me pick it up. And I bring it back to the hotel room. We like feed it some, some milk and some tuna. We let it go the Did next morning. Tuna? Um, well, yeah, we went back out to the little store. That got cat a, cr- hit the lotto. Yeah, got a can of tuna and some milk. Turns out you shouldn't feed cats milk. It got super sick. That's actually a myth. Cats don't like milk but um, they get, they can't digest dairy. I didn't know that she got diarrhea everywhere. But, <laughs> um, anyway, we let the cat go the next day and then she keeps coming back to our hotel room. And like, finally we realized like this cat is definitely like, we were worried it was someone's cat that was just wandering the street. And then it became very clear. Like this cat does not have a home. Cause it just like kept, we would like leave the door to the backyard of our little hotel open and it kept coming inside. So finally when it came time to like leave Aguas Calientes, we're like, okay, she's coming with us. And they wouldn't let her on the train. We like same third door thing. We're like, no, this cat's coming with us. Huge ordeal. We ended up having to like bribe train people to like let the cat on the train with us. Brought the cat back. Um, eventually, you know, took the cat from from Peru back to Miami. We get home and find out this cat's pregnant. Like, <laughs> get this. The, it was an eight month old kitten that we brought home from Peru and was already pregnant. And we didn't know that. So we got her back to Miami 
and she just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We take her to the vet, and the vet's like, yeah, this is pregnant. Your kitten Did you tell the vet pregnant. how you got the cat? Yeah. yeah what did yeah. the vet say? Yeah, the vet's like, uh, interesting, and just made sure she had all her shots and everything. Yeah. But definitely a wild cat, like a little feral. Um, it's just not great to have in the house sometimes because it was like a wild animal from the jungle. Um, but about, I don't know how long it took, eight or nine weeks later, we had seven kittens in our apartment in Miami. So like the one cat we brought home from Peru just multiplied into eight. So we had this whole adventure of like raising the kittens, which is crazy, really hard to keep them alive, surprisingly. They all survived. Like we got them nice homes and everything. And now the cat that we have is one of the kittens. Um, interesting tangent about, about I love the cats. That. I love yeah. cats so yeah. much. I yeah. actually been on a waiting list for a Maine Coon forever. No way. The issue was I was living in an apartment building. So I couldn't get a dog, but I'm a huge animal guy. Like I love animals and, and like ocean. I love fish tanks and aquariums. Nice. My first business was running a, in a fish tank cleaning business called wow. Ian's Fish Tank Cleaning Business. That's amazing. Great name. And uh, I, got a, I wanted to get a Maine Coon because Maine Coons, are you familiar? They're like huge raccoon looking yeah, like yeah, wild pretty cats. Much. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're so smart and intelligent. They're the most dog-like cat. Yeah. They make like so many different noises and chirps. They're wow. very, very intelligent. Um, and they can get, you know, 25 pounds, like massive. And they're just fluff love balls, right? That's amazing. So is that or a Bengal? But I think with Bengals, you need to get at least two Bengals because they're so social that yeah. you, they need to be with someone. All cats at some level do, but more so Bengals. So I got on the waiting list for Maine Coon. It's supposed to be three to six months. It's been a year and a half, almost two years now. Wow. And um, just because they didn't have nearly enough litters. But then I bought a house and now I have a yard. So I'm like, you know, I was living by myself for like a year before Sky moved in. And I'm like, oh, I'm kind of lonely, man. Like I need to go. And then, so I wanted to get my dream dog because I love dogs. We grew yeah. up with pit bulls. So I found this thing called Abuserin. So I've been on a waiting list for Abuserin, which is a big 80 pound full-time job, right? Got but it. I love dogs. So yeah. now I'm on a waiting list for that and a Maine Coon. I think I'm not going to get the cat. I'm going to just like continuously push it and push it and push it until I'm in a better living situation. Cause I just can't raise both of those things. Right. Um, but long story. Yeah. It's just animals are the best. Yeah. They animals are the, are the best because they animals the best. focus your brain. Like you're, you're thinking about all this crazy shit. And then like when you see an animal, you just, you turn into an animal, you start communicating with it in like right. really weird ways. You know, you right. get down low, you're like, right. you know, you just, it's the best man. Yeah. Like it just, yeah. The, I think everyone needs an animal. Right. Anyone who's never taken mushrooms or LSD with their dog is like missed on a whole part of life. There's just a whole part of life that comes from that. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And like just petting a dog is the best thing ever. For sure. Right? Like, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, I was a very minimalist person, like had like three t-shirts and that sort of thing, like literally owned nothing for a very long time. And so... Um, our dog was Steph's is like a, you know, a one year old dog when I met her. And so it felt like a lot of responsibility cause like I had intentionally pared my life down so much. So I could just kind of pick up and go anywhere, everything I owned fit in a backpack, that sort of thing. And I was like a little bit hesitant. Like now I've got responsibilities like a dog and all that. And it's just been nothing but joy, like a lot more meaning, um, for sure. And we just have never let it bog us down like she just comes everywhere with us and we just kind of assume that she's going to be allowed and like figure out how to get her to be allowed if she's not um 
and we haven't figured that out with the cat yet because the cat doesn't want to come everywhere, but you know, we'll figure it out. Yeah. But right now we found, we found a sitter here that we've used in Miami a few times. That's like watched, um, both our cat and dog while we traveled to countries where like some countries they can't come to, like we were in the middle East, um, uh, last November and like definitely not bring in a Where dog in Miami do you live? South beach. Oh, yeah. Sick. yeah. At the flamingo, the flamingo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, not anymore though. We move out tomorrow. So we, we had like movers in the house today. Where are you moving to? Uh, we're going to go spend a week in New York city and then we're going to get on a plane to Barcelona and figure it out. So yeah, we don't know. Airbnbs. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Airbnb is such a great freaking site. They changed the game. It is. It is. Yeah, it seems like it used to be cheap and now all of a sudden, like after all the fees and everything, it's always double the price that it says. But in terms of like, if you don't think about the, like the cost so much, but like the value it adds to your life. Yeah. Like going somewhere and living in Airbnbs is probably like two or three times more expensive than yeah. like renting a lease would be right. But like, if you put value on the life experience of being like, okay, I get for two weeks to experience this city and live there. And then for two weeks I get to experience this city and live there. I, I think it's so, so worth it. And we've, we've done that a few times where for like a six or eight month period, we'll just go live in Airbnbs and it's, it's amazing. It's expensive, but yeah, I need to spend more yeah. time on experiences. Yeah. Um, cause I haven't done, like I did a lot of traveling back in those Vima days and did a lot of Latin America, but yeah, um, I'm actually going to Europe for the first time, believe it or not, at the end of the month. So I'm really fired up about it. Amazing, um, man. Where? Uh, I, we haven't exactly mapped it out, but it's going to be like a week and it's going to be like Greece. Uh, I want to go to Greece. I want to go to Portugal, Rad. Spain, um, London, which I heard London isn't as great. I guess there's a lot of fried food That's from, from what I've heard. Yeah, they're a little crazy there right now, too. We had a connecting flight on the way back from Nairobi in like March. It was not that long ago. And it was like a four hour layover at London Heathrow and no joke. It took more than four hours to fill out the paperwork just to be allowed to connect through the airport because of COVID restrictions. And they were asking the weirdest questions. Like they asked what my income was for COVID reasons. And they asked what class my airline, whether like you're in first class or coach I was like, how is this freaking relevant for, for COVID? <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. I would not, rec- maybe it's better now, but it, it, it like, there were some serious big brother vibes around like the COVID stuff in, yeah. uh, in, in the UK. And this is, this travel talk made me think of living in Medellin. The digital nomad thing was so cool. I would have stayed in Colombia at least another six months longer had I not gotten sick with my SIBO issue. So I have like mm-hmm. a long-term stomach issue that I'm constantly fighting. Um, but I'm in a good spot with it right now. Good. I just actually finished because I talk about this on every podcast. So I feel like the journey, if y'all didn't want to hear about it, y'all watching, the, y'all listening right now, my bad. But I finished a two week elemental diet and I think this time it's going to be different. I'm going to try, I, I'm on day four now reintroducing foods mm. um, to rebuild my gut microbiome because my, uh, you know, when your stomach's not working, a lot of bad shit happens. No pun intended. Right. Your right. serotonin gets messed up. Your Your anxiety levels go out. Like I used to be, super confident can speak on stages and crazy but when my gut is inflamed and nuts i have like anxiety attacks it's nuts right yeah i heard something like the majority of your neurotransmitters are produced in your gut like more so than your brain so if your gut's out of balance like you you're chemically just all over yeah so place. i'm like yeah. open to the vegan thing just go i just want to feel good i'm do, yeah. i'm down to do whatever it takes to feel good because that's the best thing i just want to be able to have energy every day and if that means i can't eat pancakes and waffles that's fine i just Finding what makes you feel good is, is so important. You yeah, know? yeah. Having energy to, to do those things is big. Dude, I don't know if you eat dairy, but so I went through the process. I was like, you know, 
steak and bacon to this day are still my favorite foods. Like I miss them every day and I just like cut them out for ethical reasons, which I'm not, you know, judging anyone who, who doesn't, but that was just, you know, my personal choice around it. But I went through the process of like, went from like, you know, heavy meat eater to like kind of vegetarian where I would still have like eggs and dairy and fish. And for a long time, you know, still had fish kind of like cut things out step by step. The one thing that I noticed when I used to eat so much cheese, I freaking love cheese, like pizza, everything. When I cut out dairy, that was the one thing where it was like, whoa, I feel different. Like, so just, just milk products or do you do like oat milks or any of that stuff? Yeah, like it's way easier than you would think. Yeah, because like, I'm actually, I don't really, dairy to me is, the, is right. not that hard to cut out. Right, right. Out cheese all- was the hard thing. Milk was easy to cut out. But like, I, I don't know, I love cheese, like artisanal cheeses and that kind of thing. And cutting that out was hard. And that was, of all the foods cutting out, the one that I was actually like, wow, I feel noticeably different is cutting out cutting out dairy. There's like this kind of like sluggishness in the afternoon that you feel and you don't realize it until you've gone like a month or two without eating any dairy, but you kind of have a low constant level of inflammation in your whole body when you're eating a lot of dairy. And when you cut it out, you're like, wow, I've never felt what it feels like to not have like this low level of inflammation. You just feel like lean, higher energy. Getting rid of all cheese, huh? Yeah. Yeah. That was the only one that that I noticed. um, What are the most like least bad cheeses for you? You know, I don't know. Yeah, I think like most things, they're probably fine in, in other countries. Yeah. But like in the US, our, our food system is just so like, you know, massively industrialized that right. like they're just you know, pretty unhealthy cows that you're getting cheese from that have like a lot of hormones and stuff in the milk. And even their feed is like, you know, not not very good stuff. So I think it's maybe it's that, but I think it might have something to do with the hormones in it. I'm not sure. Maybe it's different, you know, if you're like, in some small village in South America and there's like, you know, cheese from there. Maybe it doesn't have the same effects. Sky, what's that yeah. place called that we're getting our meat from? The the it's sustainable carnivore dudes from Guacho Argentina. Rancho. Yeah, Guacho Rancho. It's in Miami. I went because I needed to make a ton of bone broth for this like post elemental diet thing. They are cool, man. They source all their meat directly from Argentina. Wow. And like it's just beautiful if you're in the miami area that's the way to do it they're all about sustainable farming and they only do it through that and you just believe them i mean obviously the whole thing could be a giant lie but i don't think so (laughs) i think they're as legit as possible um and it's game changer the meat's so much different you can just taste it It's, it's crazy yeah i was actually like scrolling through twitter the other day and some guy posted that he's been wearing one of those continuous glucose monitors and he uh he's like I'm from the U S like I had this glucose monitor on for a month in the U S and now I've been traveling around the EU. I've been eating the same diet and he's like, I have like one tenth as many glucose spikes in Europe as I do in the U S eating like the same diet. So just at the restaurants there. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know that much about the food system, but it does sort of seem like a lot of the, like, you know, mass produced food in the U S has some stuff that just, you know, isn't the best for you yeah. but yeah i i don't get religious about the the being vegan thing it's a personal choice um but yeah i feel great like what was interesting i actually like my max bench at the gym went up like 10 or 20 pounds and i lost weight 
It's so interesting. So it's like kind of this, like there's this like lean, lean power that comes from eating like only, only veggies, but it's difficult. And you get a lot sure. of your protein from what, like beans and lentils. That's where it comes from. Dude, it's actually like, it's surprisingly a myth about that. It's hard to get enough protein. Your body really can't absorb that much protein at a time. So like if you, you know, eat a steak, you're going to shit out like 90% of that protein. Whereas like if you're, you'd be surprised, but like everything has protein in it. Like all protein originates from plants, even like the protein in a steak, that protein was in grass. Like they, they can't make amino acids from nothing. Those amino acids are like in, in the plants. You just got to eat a lot of plants and like you get just as much, but because of the way like plant foods are sort of slow released and you're just like constantly kind of like eating a lot of it with a little bit of protein over a long period of time, you like, it's very, very easy. It's never a problem. Like to, uh, the only things that you actually have to think about are like B vitamins. You want to like take B vitamins, but otherwise like it's actually really easy to have like a well-balanced diet and the whole like not having enough protein thing is not, I don't even think about it. It's like not an issue. Like you'd be surprised you have a bowl of salad. That's got like six grams of protein in like the spinach leaves. It's, do it's surprising. dressings and everything. Yeah. Like olive oil, MCT oil, lemon juice, that sort of thing. Yeah. But like all like, if I make a salad, I'll like pour hemp seeds on it, like put pistachios in there, you yeah. know, like all that, all that kind of stuff. And your but, whole taste buds change because you're doing it and you, you start to crave that stuff. Yeah. Like you, I still like, like the brain is just sort of wired where like when we were cave people, like when you, you know, hunted an animal that was like like the most nutritious thing you could have if you're a hunter gatherer, right? Cause like there's not that much food sources around and meats are a super nutrient dense food source. So our brains are just wired to be like, that's the best thing ever. So like, I still have that, you know, I dream about having a steak sometime or like I miss like the taste <laughs> of bacon. Um, but I really, I don't like have a temptation to go like eat, yeah. eat, eat meat anymore. What was interesting to me as someone who is like identity, like a big meat eater for a long time, I stopped eating meat for environmental reasons. Um, I don't want to go deep on it on the show, but if, if you get kind of deep into the caloric efficiency of like one, like calorie in versus calories out or like calorie in versus grams of protein out, like beef is stupidly inefficient and has some really bad impacts on deforestation. So like, if you care about the Amazon, like I do care about nature a lot. I kind of went down the, the rabbit hole learning about like the real land use impact of, of different food sources. The long and the short of it is like for every like, uh, like land use per gram of protein, beef is like 20 times more land than, than pork, which is like five times more than chickens. And then there's like kind of all the plant sources and then like things like, you know, a lot of fish are kind of like lower in that, but a cow just takes so long to get to market weight that like 99% of the, the food you feed a cow over its life just goes to the cow living its life and not to building, you know, protein sources. So to feed cows, we got to have a lot of cropland. And what's sort of interesting is we ran out of cropland in the U S to feed cows. So like when you go get like a hamburger from McDonald's, that cow's eating corn that corn is grown or is purchased on a global commodity market. And where most of that's coming from incremental beef demand is actually being grown in Brazil and they're cutting down incremental Amazon to grow that corn. 
And like you could do, do your own research on this. This is like the takeaway I got from like trying to do the most unbiased research I could on it. And I was like, whoa, like 90% of the ongoing deforestation in the Amazon is for agriculture land. And turns out that like that is being used for cattle feed, like not for eating. I was like, shit. And then like, I traced it. I was like, but that's in Brazil. That doesn't affect like me eating a hamburger in the U.S. And then I kept researching. And I was like, shit, like, you know, all the meat producers in the U.S. buy their corn on the global market. Yeah. The one thing I was bad on is yeah. ketchup. I got to get rid of ketchup. That's terrible. A lot of sugar in that. Yeah. Even the yeah. stuff with like no high fructose corn syrup, because that's obviously like one of the most silent killers in our nation. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. That and seed oils, dude. Canola oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, super bad in everything read labels and try not to eat that. No one ever likes to hear like the vegan rant, so I'll, I'll cut it off. But if you are interested in it, like I made my own decision for, for environmental reasons. But the crazy thing, crazy, I never expected this. I always kind of What about avocado this, oil, by the way? Uh, I eat a lot of it and I know avocado that- Avocado oil is avoc- okay? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just and, the other ones. Uh, no, canola oil, sunflower, and safflower. They're called vegetable oils. Yeah, yeah. Like those are the ones those mass produced in the US. Those are really inflammatory. Like you can do your research on those. For but sure, like, for sure. That's what, like there's a reason you feel shitty after you eat a bag of potato chips and it's because you just ate a bunch of those oils. Um, but like, you know, olive oil is great for you. Uh, coconut oil is great for you. Avocado oil is great for coconut you. Coconut oil is a super, like, yeah. shout yeah, out yeah, coconut yeah, oil. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> coconut oil is just the best. Yeah, yeah. MCT oil. That's what do you think about shit. the defense chemicals in plants? Defense, oh, like lectins? Yeah. Uh, so I know a lot of people have like gluten allergies. Gluten is a lectin. Um, I'm not an expert on this. So I'm just like regurgitating stuff I've heard. Right. But, um, I did some research on that. Like, you know, some plants that are high in lectins. And I've noticed that personally, I can feel a little bit of like an inflammatory allergic response from night, from some nightshade vegetables. So like, um, like eggplants, like sometimes if I eat a lot of bell pepper or peppers, I feel like a little bit of an inflammatory response in my body, which is because those have high lectins in the skin and the seeds, tomatoes too. Um, gluten is just a lectin. But I think like people have different, you know, reactions to, to lectins. You know, some people have really strong reactions to it. Some people don't. I think it's an individual thing. But it's something to be aware of, like to research, you know, what the different lectins are and like kind of learn which ones you have have a response to what are your favorite places to eat in miami that are just like on point with your diet oh man i like we cook at home mostly there's like very few um like vegan restaurants here we usually don't go out to restaurants because they use really unhealthy oils most of the time in restaurants like they're they're cooking stuff in like in bad vegetable oils most places there's a place called plant miami which is like a raw vegan restaurant that's freaking amazing really good and like you feel awesome after eating there but um i don't know after like two or three years of having a super clean diet now you start to get really sensitive to it where you like you eat some fried food and you feel shitty for like six or eight hours <laughs> which is like crazy um but yeah so we don't try not to like eat out much cooked food unless it's going to be at a restaurant that's like definitely going to be cooking with like healthy oils like not frying stuff. Yeah, I'm so stoked to just like pick your brain on these <laughs> things because I'm just constantly figuring out my own. The, the thing that's hard about food is that if you're stuck to a diet, you're so used to like, you have a routine, right? Yeah. You develop a routine, even if you think it's healthy and it's still not healthy and it's it's killing you slowly in a sense. So like taking time thinking about food all the time is so draining, right? It's like, ugh. like if right. you actually like, especially once you start cooking your own meals, you're spending like four hours a day cooking. So it becomes like non-duplicatable, which is why all these right. you know, food services 
came up. Right. But I guess where I was going with it is that it's just so important to get right because I spend way too much time thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? For sure. But sure. it's also like I started this gut community because I made all these cyber videos that got like 80,000 views on YouTube and like continue to grow yeah. up because I guess the backlinks are crushing. So there's like 500 plus people in the cyber community and everyone like helps each other out. Wow. Uh, so it's kind of cool. So there's always when, when no matter what you're suffering in this world and I've had plenty of different health issues the audience is more than well aware of. If you're honest and open about it. There are people out there going through something so similar or the same thing, and they're dying to talk to you. And yeah, you, that's you, awesome because I'd never heard of Cybo before, but it's crazy you talk about it and like a community just like comes out of the internet. That's amazing. And like they want to help, you know, they want to be there, and it's you shouldn't feel ashamed of of stuff. It's it's the people that aren't scared to just say what's good with their life in the most authentic way possible that find help, that find reassurance, that feel better you're not alone you know right. the worst thing you can do is just not tell anyone not talk up whether it's depression or a health issue like you need to talk up you need to it's being talking up is being brave but it's also surviving it's the third path third door right yeah yeah you yeah. know so that was just like a psa but one thing i always ask and i'm curious you've done so much you're 30 same age i'm 29 about to be 30 in a month shout out and You've done so much in your life, right? You've been able to travel how many countries now? I don't know, maybe 30, 40-ish. You know, you've stayed in these most exotic locations. You've worked for startups. You've been broke. You've been to these exotic locations. You, you found the love of your life. You've built successful companies over and over again. What's next for you, man? Like, what's exciting for you? Like, what are things that you're, you're stoked on that you're, you're constantly thinking about on a daily basis? That's like, that's an interesting question. I usually have a really clear picture. Like I've always been very goal oriented. Every year I'd write like my 10 year plan, like when I'm 30, here's my goals, or when I'm 40, here's my goals. Um, and what's good about that is looking back at them, I looked at like the goals by the time I'm 30 and like hit them to the T. Um, the goals that I wrote when I was 20 about when I was 30. So like that, you know, writing goals was like, you know, it works for sure. But one thing Steph taught me was I didn't realize I was just living so much in the future, always planning for the future, always like, you know, sort of, uh, what do you call it? When you're just sort of like sacrificing now, where you're like, I'm okay to like grind a 10, 12 hour day. I'm okay to like spend very little money right now because, you know, I can be patient um, for like delayed gratification. And I started to have these realizations that like, wow, I look back on like whole two or three year periods in my life and they just kind of were a blur because I was just like, working so hard, like burning the candle at both ends, so goal and like future focused that I actually just wasn't spending enough time in the moment because I was always thinking about goals. And so one thing I'm trying to do a lot more now is just sort of not have goals, like not have uh, a really like grand plan of, of what's, what's next. Like right now we're trying to sell one of our businesses, um, raised venture capital to start another one so we're we're launching a, a natural body wash line to compete with Bronner's. we're going to crush Bronner's. the product is amazing i wish it was out we haven't picked a name yet we're working with a branding firm but it's like if you like Bronner's, this is going to blow your mind it's like really really good um like it's an olive oil based body wash amazing launching that soon so there's just like it's there's a lot going on launching that and then like you know managing the whole only finder family of businesses so i'm just not really thinking about much more than like 
you know, uh, putting fuel on the fire. Yeah. Like there's, there's a long-term vision of where those things can go, but really just, okay. Like what needs to get done this month and, and trying to, trying to knock those out. And I'm sort of enjoying the, um, I'm trying to get in touch with this thing called like the choiceless choice. Uh, Steph and I just read a book called becoming, um, which is really good. It's becoming with a Q. Um, it's, a uh, Benjamin Becker and Azria Becker who got married. Um, like their stories are really crazy. Like he sold a company for like $200 million and she's like a kind of like spirituality coach, like, a uh, th- that sort of undersells it. But, uh, like as a really good, uh, spiritual teacher sort of, and they like came together and have this amazing relationship and channel a lot of like the ancient, you know, wisdom of the Americas into their life through like a lot of shamans and that kind of thing. And there's like, I'm trying to learn more of that kind of thing. Going to do ayahuasca probably at some point this year and start, start learning. That My friend sort of had thing. an awesome experience with it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of people that, uh, seem to teach, t- treat it like it's a teacher and they have a relationship with it where it's like, you know, you know, you know, when it's time when you're like called to the medicine and when it's got something to teach you and you sit with it and it beats the shit out of you and teaches you something. He said that he felt that like there was these giant trees overlooking him and he went into like the jungle of like Ecuador or something crazy um, by himself. I'm talking about Peter Clotier's guy. I don't know if you know Peter, but he's the, also he lived in, he moved to Columbia right after college at UNH, like chased a girl there and then uh, ended up staying for like six years and just living an amazing life. Like I, I just wow. love that kid, but he did ayahuasca and he was telling me that um, he felt like it, this like really unique calming sense of almost like a figure was over him, but he wasn't scared about it. It wasn't like a scary figure. It was like this calming, you know, this, this peaceful thing. I'm trying to think of what I could compare it to, but it just felt very familiar. Many people call it the grandmother and, and it sort of like teaches you and guides you like, like a wise grandmother. I haven't done it yet. I've read a lot of like, you know, people's writing who, who kind of do it regularly. Yeah. Um, but I think there's something there. I think if you, you probably need to treat it with a lot of reverence, right. Um, and you need to like go into it. Like, I'm not going to do this to like have a psychedelic, you know, like, trip out <laughs> like it's gonna be a good time experience it's like i'm gonna go here to get like humbled and shown some uncomfortable truths and and like learn some stuff um but yeah i'm sort of at a phase in life where it's like i feel like trying to get you know less trying to like plow my way through life and like will shit into existence and more sort of like be in the moment. sit back and feel what flows like one of the things they talk about in that book becoming I highly recommend it very different than a lot of like you know entrepreneurial content but it's like a good yin and the yang like barbell kind of thing very different like some stuff might come off a little woo woo but like there's really good uh like good things that will stretch your thinking um in there and and one thing they say a lot is just like it's either a full fuck yes or it's a no and like what's you know a full fuck yes and that like that really emphasis on a full fuck yes love that and and trying to feel like hey is this a full fuck yes like what what separates this from just being a, a fuck yeah or a yeah this sounds fun to like full fuck yes so i'm trying to like gain more discernment around like what is the full you know what feels like the full fuck yes right now and just kind of you know that's a great lesson in let life that feeling guide you're like oh, what should i do i mean if you have to really ask what should i do it's probably a fuck no <laughs> <laughs> right right because you know, you right. know yeah like, 
If yeah. it's so exciting about it, you just start doing it. You don't yeah. even have to ask yourself. You're right. Like, that sounds right. great. Where right. do we start? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of wisdom in that, like um, trying to say no to everything by default, because like you don't have space to, to feel for what is the full fuck yes or the like ability to pursue it. If you said yes to a bunch of other like not full fuck yes things, things that were like, yeah, that sounds fun but it's not a full fuck yes. You fill your life with those things and then you just don't have the space to either pick up on or discern what is the full fuck yes or just like the ability to go to go chase it. So trying to like be in one of those periods where I'm saying no to things, cutting things out, creating some space in life to like pick up on like, you know, what's the, you know, the full fuck yes thing that really like grabs me to go. And yeah, if you, and if you could thing. go back in time yeah, and like, I, I love asking this question because it just makes you think like if you could go back in time when you're 20 years old and you're about to drop out of school and current you 30 year old, you can talk to that 20 year old you and say, listen, man, we don't have much time, but you could share one, two or three things to him that would have saved you a ton of time, money, headaches, heartaches. And obviously, you yeah. know, the two things most people say is, you know, I wouldn't have said anything because it made me who I am today, which is a great answer. Or I would have invested in Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> um, what are maybe some of those lessons that you think could have saved you some of that? I mean, I would definitely go back to my college self and be like, don't drink and party so much. Like, it's still fun to do that, but don't do that like every day of the fucking week, like I should have been, cause I grew up in Washington where there's beautiful mountains and I didn't really spend time backpacking or hiking or camping in the mountains until much later when I had a full-time job and was working really hard and just fell in love with it. Like it was so amazing. And I just didn't have enough time to go be in the mountains there. Cause I waited until I was like, you know, working 60, 70 hours a week at a startup. That is definitely one where I was like, I would probably still be the same person I am today, but there's a bunch of nights in college that just all blurred together because it was just kind of like getting drunk in the same houses with the same people a bunch of times where it's like, yeah, it's fun to get wasted and have parties in college, but you really need to do it as many times as you're doing it. Like, I wish I could tell myself, Hey, party half as much. And then like go backpacking in the freaking beautiful mountains here. Cause I'm going to remember those experiences a lot more. So that's like love an obvious that. one. I love that. Yeah, that's an obvious one that comes to mind. I would say generally all of those thoughts are going to be around things where I was doing stuff that sort of blur together in my memory where it's like, did I really need to be doing so much of that thing? Could I have like done, you know, half as much of that thing, got similar outcomes and then like had space for, for other things. So that's a little bit nebulous for sure. I can try to think of if there is. No, I think that's yeah. a perfect answer. That's yeah. perfect. It's not yeah. even, you don't, don't force it. Yeah. That's a great answer. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I mean, living out in the, uh, even when I was living in California, I only started going camping like at, right before I left. And I was like, shit, I didn't realize how sick the Sierra mountains were. Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Damn, they're so gorgeous. This guy went to Big Bear all the time because he was in San Diego. Big fan of that. Big Bear and Mammoth. Yeah. Amazing places. Yeah. You never regret time in the mountains or the wilderness. It's like you never feel like you did too that much. Quietness of that. is so crazy. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, it gets harder and harder to find the space to do that the older you get because, like, you just, life moves you further away from those things. You get more responsibilities where it's hard to be, like, you know, completely unplugged. It's like, 
at a certain point in your life when you got a lot going on, it's like a big deal. You got to prepare for it to be like completely unplugged with no internet access for a week. Sure. Right. And you know, when you're, when you're younger, sometimes it's just like as simple as saying, tell your boss, like, Hey, I'm going to be, you know, offline for two days. And like, I'm going to set an email responder and I, I'm just an employee at a company right now. Like my world's not going to melt down if I can't like, you know, access email or internet for a while. Uh, I definitely took that for granted, you know, earlier on. So yeah, <laughs> if you're in that phase, like go spend more time in the mountains and the wilderness. That's one thing. Like I, I definitely wish I did more of that. Um, not really a regret thing, but I definitely know that like there's a lot of, you know, went out to a bar with my friends on a Friday night and like all of those nights blur together from my early twenties. I can't really tell the different nights apart where I went out to bars with my like college friends drinking and like every experience I have camping in the mountains is such a unique experience in my, in my mind and memory. So yeah, looking for, for, for more of those. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, man, first off, yeah. I got to say, thank you so much for coming to this, the, to the crib. Like this has been an amazing experience that you, you're just so open about all these experiences. And I've personally gotten so much value out of this. Cool. So like on behalf of the entire audience, the damn good day shows a damn good night of a damn good day. Thank you so much for coming on. I look forward to just following your journey, staying in touch, all these things and getting you back. Cause I mean, the story is crazy and you're just getting started, dude. This is awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah we'll see. Well, I would have loved to ask you more questions too, but um, we'll have to do that next time. Love but, it, man. Yeah, Let's yeah. get it going. So, till next time, brother. Cool. This is a damn good day to have a damn good day.